Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, it's time for Fight Night Picks with your hosts, Frank and Matt Welcome back with Fight Night Picks. Really looking forward to this weekend's card featuring a couple of strawweight contenders up at the top. Mackenzie Dern taking on Marina Rodriguez. As always, one half of your host to do with Craig Allen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP. I suggest you do the man to my left to your right. As always, Matt Allen FNP. And Matt, last weekend, it was one of those cards that on paper, maybe some people were a little bit leery, but plenty of finishes, plenty of great fights, maybe not the main event included. And overall, the results were in the positive. So we parlay that and roll into this week. And it's only an 11 fight set. I know that there's definitely fights on this one. Probably going to fall under the radar throughout the week. And then on Saturday night, a lot of people getting excited for the return of Maria Agapova taking on fellow prospects Sabina Mazow and so on and so forth. I know this is one of those cards that Fight Matrix, maybe not ranking at the highest, but there definitely are some fights that are exciting and there's some fights that should deliver. Where's my trophy, Craig? It feels like every time you win over the weekend, we bring it out. But when I win, we don't. Here's the good thing. And I'm going to give you your props. Don't worry. You were starting to make a little bit of a comeback there. A lot of bit of a comeback. A lot of bit of a comeback, but I finally halted the momentum. I just felt like I had to pat myself on the back because I'm not going to lie. I've been looking at the numbers and I've been getting a little nervous the last month, but it's been a great few weeks after we had that one terrible week, but I am pretty excited for this card. I know it might not have the biggest names on it, but like you had mentioned, whoever wins this title fight, there's a really good chance they find themselves in a title just fight. Just main event. Just it, main sorry. event fight. Exactly. Whoever wins this main event will probably find themselves in a title shot next and I know the great thing or I know something that we both love about both halves of the main event is that both fighters have improved throughout their UFC tenures you don't look at Mackenzie Dern in her first fight and the fighter now and think wow that's the exact same fighter and the thing, same thing can be said for Marina Rodriguez she was very green and just kind of a power puncher but now she's added so many other facets to her game that I'm really excited about this weekend's main event. Should be a great one and again 11 fights to choose from a little difficult to narrow it down to two to pick for our fight of the night as always presented by Manscaped. You can check them out, manscaped.com. Use promo code FNP to get 20% off and free shipping. Let's throw it on over to the Fight of the Night screen. And with Fight Night Picks, we try not to cherry pick up off the top of a card, but this is one of those cards that you have to do that thing because in the co-main event, Rude Boy Randy Brown coming off of that one-arm rear naked choke that he did have against Alex Cowboy Oliveira. A win that definitely holds some water in terms of the name value opposite Randy Brown. And for Jared Gooden, I mean, I think he vaporized Niklas Stutz. Does anybody know where he is? That was such a violent knockout. And for Gooden, that's what you know and love him for. He does have that crazy kind of power in his hands. And Randy Brown's in a really interesting position right now because Randy Brown's had a few opportunities to fight some top-ranked guys. He's come up short in the past, but it feels like this is finally prime Randy Brown. Everything's starting to come together, so I'm very excited for this coming event. Can't wait for this one. And with our second pick... I mean, a flyweight. Tim Elliott taking on Mateus Nicolau. Matt, I, I really do like this fight. A couple of very dynamic guys. A little bit of a clash of styles, but the pitter-patter style of 
Mr. Tim Elliott, when he's on the feet, really kind of accentuates maybe the power punching that you have out of Mateus Nikolaou. Something that we don't really see at 125. Exactly. Nikolaou is very unique with his punching ability and power at this weight class. But the thing that you gotta love about Tim Elliott is he's kind of like that smaller Clay Guida. He's always doing something. There's never a point in a Tim Elliott fight where you're just kind of watching and thinking, wow, he's just kind of standing in the mirror. He's going to force the action in this fight. And when you're forcing the action on a guy who has the power Nikolaou has, it's going to result in an amazing fight. The man's scrappy. Mateus Nikolaou's got his work cut out for him. As always, check out our sponsor for the show. It's Manscaped at manscaped.com. Use promo code FNP. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping. And we're setting into our new digs. The studio's going to move. You knew it. I knew it. Matt knew it. But it's going to be coming in the next few weeks up here in good old Canada. I'm enjoying my Lay's ketchup chips, a staple. I've got the Canadian flag on my sweater. Wow. I'm going to have a great time this weekend as Matt makes way too much noise for your commute or if you're hanging around on the airplane. Chips are good, Chris. Listen, they are great. But if you're hanging around watching, listening, liking, and subscribing, we hope you have a great week. Enjoy these fights. As always, we'll have question mark kicks two hours before the prelims this weekend. And if you happen to subscribe, you can bump that total up because once we reach 30,000, and I see a lot of people that are upset out there right now, Matt. I see the DMs. I see the comments are saying, guys, just do the show. We put the challenge out we there. Did. All you have to do is come through on it. So if you've been hovering around that button the last couple of weeks, all it takes is a sub and we can work our way right up there. We add a new show for that new office that we're breaking in. Maybe you saw a picture on Instagram, which was down today on Monday. Maybe you didn't see it. I don't know, but make sure you hit that sub because listen, I really want to make that show. Exactly. We're going to hold up our end of the bargain. We just need you guys to do your part too. All right. Make sure you check out our second channel as well. 15 minute car breaks, new content coming out there that we filmed this past weekend from the new office Ooh. so really looking forward to it really looking forward to this card as well 11 great fights that you're not going to want to miss so keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it It seems like every single weekend for the last month or so, a Bellator-style prelim gets thrown on our plate like coleslaw or butternut squash or whatever side dish you hate to get. And this weekend, to open the card, we have the American bad boy, Charlie Ontiveros, taking on the mean machine, Steve Garcia and Matt. It might seem like I'm starting this video out on the wrong foot, and I definitely apologize because these two guys are going to reach a pinnacle, and I've already reached a pinnacle, that I never will. They've each worn the three biggest letters in all of combat sports on their shorts, on their shirts, and they made the walk to the octagon. And let's give them credit where credit's due. They both accepted short notice fights in less than stellar conditions. For Steve Garcia, he took on Luis Pena on short notice up a weight class. For Charlie Ontiveros, he took on a surging 2020 Male Fighter of the Year, a guy that Kyle Dawkins not only knocked out but submitted last week in Kevin Holland. Now, obviously the circumstance around that fight, I joke, but for Charlie Ontiveros, he took the fight nonetheless. That was an absolute buzzsaw move, and look what happened. But what we can do, we can head back. We can take a 15-minute card breaks look at the rookie review because for Steve Garcia, his debut was quite a while ago. It was a two- or three-minute video. Let's go back and look at what exactly Charlie Ontiveros brought into the cage before he took on Kevin Holland. Charlie Ontiveros, decent nickname, coming in here with uh, the American Bad Boy title. Guy's 11-6, a lot of finish wins to his record. 
And that's where the Bucks stop. Charlie Ontiveros needs like an earthquake and an overhand right and an axe kick and a check hook to hit all at the same time. And also the planets have to align and Jared Cannonier has to be there with crystals and Diego Sanchez has to be there doing a walk-in at the same time. And Mero Yamasaki has to be the ref. Mike Goldberg has to yell a preemptive, it's over. And Josh Thompson has to pump the tires of Diego Lima and call him a goat. All these things have to happen at once. And then you have to have a thunder, thunder, thundercats land for Charlie Ontiveros to win this fight. And Matt, you look as perplexed as I thought you would by that. Because that was a loaded statement. But if people are unaware of who Charlie Ontiveros is, A, I have to say... Kudos to Charlie Ontiveros. You made it further than I'm ever going to make it in my entire life. You're going to make an appearance in the octagon. You're not going to have camo shorts like Bryce Mitchell, but you're going to make it nonetheless. So who's Charlie Ontiveros? Well, 11 and 6, I had mentioned that. All six losses by finish, all of them by knockout. Now, you might not recognize the Todd Moores, Rashid Abdullahs of the world, but you definitely know Jeff Neal, who beat him in 2014. You know Michael Venom Page, who beat him in 2015. You might not know Nikolay Veritnikov that beat him in 2016. Apologize. I'm fired up. You might know Will Morris. Will yeah. Morris, blue chip Will Morris, who beat him when he was 1-0. So Will Morris was 1-0. Our guy Charlie Ontiveros was 9-5. Will Morris knocked him out in the first round. Now I'm going hard in the paint about this fight. Because Charlie Ontiveros, of all the guys that he's beaten, and he's beaten 11 guys, their combined record of all those wins is 40 30 and one Charlie Ontiveros has beaten guys that have salty records and of the last two wins that he's had. And this is going back. So his third to last win, 2017 his last win, 2019 and then 2019, he beat Derek age day. Who's three and five, not to take anything away from Charlie Ontiveros, a great uh, jump knee knockout. It was great. Followed it up. And then in his last fight, he beat Washington Luis who's five and four. Well, Washington Luis going into that fight hadn't fought in over a year. And his loss before that, Anthony Ivey, a name I already brought up. Derek Age Day lost to Anthony Ivey, Santos Rosales Jr., Jason Langlier, then Charlie Ontiveros, then Nico Echeverry. Right now, our guy Derek Age Day, 3-7. and seven. Charlie Ontiveros wasn't fighting the best competition. Matt, I haven't even gotten to the best part. Like, I'm already upset. I, see I will say, Ontiveros' first strike in that fight against uh, Washington Luis was a, an axe kick from his front leg. Pretty cool, but you don't do that against the best fighters in the world unless you're a madman like Yuri Prahaksha or Michelle Pahea or Johnny Walker. But sometimes that comes back to bite you when you're fighting the best competitions. You can't do that in the UFC. You probably can't. Probably can't. So for Charlie Ontiveros, I look at all these fights. I look at the records of the guys that he's fought. He's a southpaw. That Luis fight, he uh, ends the fight with a check right hook. He's southpaw again. That, that strike when you're moving back and you land a check right hook, unless you're Vanderlei Silva, you're going to have a hard time knocking out top 185ers in the UFC. It's going to be it's gonna be a hard time. It's going to be a hard time. So Charlie Ontiveros, I don't want to count him out, but it's going to take, again, a solar eclipse, the Diego Sanchez's, the Mike Goldberg's. The stars have to align for this guy to win. I'm rooting for him. I hate to be so negative in a fight. I'm not even trying to be negative on Charlie Ontiveros' part. Again, 
All praise and all kudos to Charlie Ontiveros. So for Charlie Ontiveros, he gets dropped or picked up and thrown. He felt a pop in his neck. The referee ends the action. He leaves on a stretcher. And Dana White, after the fight, said he's 100% fine. So I, I don't know. All I do know is that in February of this past year, USADA threw out a six-month suspension to Charlie Ontiveros. And I want to get this right, so I'll read it right off the old paper notes. Because there was the presence of DHCMT. M3 metabolites. Now, you might know what that means, Matt. You might know what that means. That's the same type of substance that was in the second-to-last light heavyweight champion's blood before he came back, and it was a whole big thing, and they made it big news, and we're just going to leave it where it's at. But for Charlie Ontiveros, he could have been reinstated back in April 13th. That was when he could have if he reached a level below 100 picograms. So there's that. Charlie Ontiveros now coming back this weekend, taking on Steve Garcia. And Matt, I'm really riled up about this fight because this fight is scheduled to take place at lightweight. That's the number that's thrown out there. And you know what? Let's dot my T's and cross my I's. I'm on topology. We're breaking the fourth wall. All right. UFC stats also says that this one's at lightweight. Good? We good? We good. Everybody at home, we're good. In the plane, on the car? Okay. How many career fights has Charlie Antiveros had at 155 pounds? That's a question on everybody's mind, right? Good. I'm glad you asked me. Zero. He hasn't had a single fight at 155 pounds. The guy's had 17 fights at 170, and then he had a one-off at 185 against Kevin Holland on short notice where he weighed 182.5, and if you're a visual learner, if you're watching this video, you can see it up in front of you. Okay, so Charlie Antiveros, maybe he's got the right frame for it. Maybe somebody at the PI said it could happen, and maybe it will this weekend. How many fights has Steve Garcia had at 155? I'm glad you asked me. One. One fight at 155 on short notice against Luis Pena. He had 10 of them at 135. Missed weight in two of those fights. Missed weight when he was on Dana White's Contender Series, actually. Ended up with a big finish there. Didn't get the contract. He also had one fight at 140 pounds, and he had one fight at 145. So Steve Garcia's had one fight at 155. He's six feet tall, long, gangly, good striker. Now he's moving up to 155. Charlie Antiveros, American bad boy. He's a striker, never fought at lightweight in his life. What are we doing here? What do you want from me? I'm not Dana White. What are, I'm not Sean Shelby. I didn't put this fight together, Craig, okay? If I was the matchmaker of the UFC, I probably just would have made a different fight and put that as the first fight of the night. Because yes, Charlie Ontiveros has a lot of question marks surrounding him at the UFC level. Charlie Ontiveros is kind of like a guy who comes from a junior college but gets drafted in like, in like the lottery. And you're like, wait, what? This guy's getting minutes all of a sudden, and then he's played in the NBA, and you're like, really? He's still around? And then he's around like three seasons in, and then gets cut. I just don't think Charlie Ontiveros is the type of guy who's going to have like a seven, eight, nine fight UFC run. I think it's going to be like a two and done, three and done type of a deal. Because like you had mentioned, with Ontiveros fought at 170, fought at 185. I have serious concerns about him making the move down to 155 pounds. And the other thing about Ontiveros that I do not like whatsoever is... Not only is the fact that his record not great, and I know we say this a lot, records are for DJs in MMA. It doesn't really matter what your record is. It matters who you fight and what you look like against that level of competition. The guy's been knocked out seven times, and that really is concerning. If you've shown a lack of durability at 170 and 185 pounds, I really worry about how durable you're going to be with an extreme weight cut down to 155 pounds that you've never made before in your life. Because here's the thing. Well, uh, well, who's a good example? Dolce Lunjambula. When he decided to move down to 185 pounds for the first time later on in life, yes, we were both concerned. He's a big guy. How's he going to look? 
at least he didn't show the ability to get knocked out by anything up at one or up at 205 pounds or up at heavyweight. He was a big, durable guy. If anything, we were worried more about his cardio moving down than anything else. With Antiveros, he was fragile at uh, welterweight. He was fragile at middleweight. You might want to attribute that to, oh, he was fighting bigger guys, bigger punchers. I just don't think he's all that durable. And the one thing you can say about Steve Garcia, I know he didn't look great against Luis Pena. He does have pretty good punching power and he does have really good overhands. And if he is able to get on the inside of the distance of Charlie Antiveros, I think he can land some really big bombs on the inside. Because this thing about Antiveros, he's got that like, when you're at range, my game is pretty good. But when you start to pressure him, he doesn't really deal with it all that well. When you pressure him, he doesn't really have the wrestling background and just be able to say like, hey, now we're going down to the mat. I just... When I look at Charlie Antiveros and his game as a whole, he lacks a lot of those X-factors that we look for when we look at just UFC caliber fighters. So for Garcia, he's got good power. He's got not the greatest takedown defense. Obviously, you saw that against Luis Pena, but we had seen that kind of coming into the UFC. And his wrestling offensively isn't really the greatest. For Antiveros, he throws so many unorthodox strikes that take a lot of movement and a lot of time. It worries me here too. It does. And that's the thing about Antiveros. He does like to set up his shots. And even if you look back at the Kevin Holland fight, I know it was a really short sample size. He had trouble with the speed of Kevin Holland. And yeah, Kevin Holland's like an in-between welterweight middleweight. But still, if you're struggling with the guy's speed at middleweight and at 170, lightweights are normally faster. And former featherweights moving up to lightweight are normally way faster. This is the last thing I'll say about this fight. When it comes to grappling, normally size is a massive advantage. We've seen this many times before. Look at Gegard Mousasi versus Rory McDonald. I would say MMA skill-wise, those guys are very close, but the size was a massive factor in that fight. Where is size a much less of a factor? It's in the striking. Why is it in boxing? Guys are able to go up 9, 10 weight classes sometimes and still win belts. It's because in striking, speed is what matters more than anything else. And that's why I think Steve Garcia is going to win this fight. I know a lot of people are going to look to the fact that, oh, Antiveros, he is the bigger guy. And if he makes lightweight, look how big he's going to be. I think there's a lot more negatives that are going to come along with this weight cut than perceived positives. And that's why I like Garcia in this one. That's that's a really weird thing for me. And when I looked at the Odds, I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. Because if you're going to lay down cheddar on a guy in Steve Garcia that opened a minus 300, he's a minus 318, you're insane. I mean, Charlie Antiveros, open a plus 250, he's a plus 245, roughly. Rough numbers. Matt, the topology votes, I haven't looked at them as mad as I got. I'm going to say... Yeah, wow. 728 total votes, 85% Garcia, 33% by decision, 60% by knockout for the 15% that have Antiveros, 42% by decision, 44% by knockout. I just, again, it's a Bellator prelim fight. That's that's exactly what this is. Like, they bury good fighters on their prelims. Think about it that way, too. So, I look at this fight, it, it's very difficult. Again, Steve Garcia is a guy, the majority of his career was spent at Bantamweight or Bantamweight adjacent. Whether he missed it, went to 145 or 140. Had a one-off on short notice against Luis Pena. That's cool. Antiveros, one fight at 185 on short notice where he weighed 182 and a half. So, just scratch that. The other 17 fights are at 170. Why now are you moving down in weight? I would think it'd be easier. There'd be an easier path to the title at 170. Hashtag one last run, Craig. Come on. I don't know, man. I, I have a really hard time picking this. If you can make an honest argument for either guy down below in the comments section, A, I'll listen to you, and B, 
Honestly, I'll talk about it in question mark kicks two hours before the prelims coming up this weekend. But for right now, I agree. I like the kicks and I like the speed of Steve Garcia versus some of the flashy motions and strikes that Charlie Ontiveros goes for. I agree 100%. All right, Matt, both of us going with Steve Garcia. But again, at 3-1, to one, it seems insane. Again, make your presence known. Let's hear from you down below in the comments section. Was I too hard on them? Maybe I was. You let me know down below, Matt, what I'm not going to be too hard on. The co-main event. Randy Brown taking on Ooh. Jared Gooden. Love it. Up at the top, strawweight contenders. Dern taking on Rodriguez. I can get down with that. Just keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. A couple of strawweight contenders and prospects really looking to right the ship. Coming up this weekend, we have Lupi Lupita Godinez taking on Sam Page, Sam Hughes. Now, Matt, last weekend, I wasn't a fan of a couple of different nicknames. I mean, Shanimal, didn't like it that much. Sam Page, definitely not on board. But for Sam Page, 0-2 so far in her young UFC career. Now, she filled in on incredibly short notice to take on Tisha Torres her first time out awful eye injury i was glad to see her corner had the wherewithal to throw in the towel between rounds almost similar to what douglas silva de andrage's corner did when he fought Piotr Jan. i'm cool with that do more boxing things than mma that's cool with me but for sam hughes didn't make sense to go into a second round in that fight so you live to fight another day she takes on loma look with me has a relatively competitive affair little bit worried where loma excelled in areas that i definitely didn't think she would but for Sam Hughes, rallied back in the last round, made it halfway competitive. For Lupi Godinez, I haven't been as high a, about a prospect at 115 pounds since, I mean, it's it's cheap, but one half of your main event coming up. Mackenzie Dern, I mean, man. How dare you? You knew how good of a prospect she was coming into this division. I was so high on Lupi Godinez. So, without further ado, let's throw it on back to a 15-minute card breaks rookie review. Because, again... The shine was there. We know how the fight went with Penne, and I'll talk about that right after. So let's throw it on back and learn exactly where Lupi Godinez does shine in the cage. In steps the Mexican-Canadian, Lupita Lupi Godinez and Matt. I'm telling you, for this week, I watched a lot of tape that was outside of the UFC, outside of the Bellators and the big promotions of the world. Now, for Loopy, her last fight was over with LFA. Before that, with BTC, right up here in Canada. And listen, I'm not lying about this. This is the prospect that I'm most excited to watch on this card. Holy smokes, have I been impressed by Loopy Godinez. She does so many things well in the cage. And if you wanted to get a good idea of how she matches up in a fight like this. And I'm going to hand it over to you when we talk about Jessica Penny. For Lupi Godinez in her last fight, it was for the LFA strawweight title, and she fought a fighter that I know the UFC wishes they had in Vanessa Demopoulos. And we've seen her with LFA, and we've seen her with some of the bigger promotions, bigger regional promotions. We saw her on Contender Series, and it just never seems to be the right moment for Vanessa Demopoulos. But what's she good at? Some of the same things that Jessica Penne is good at. And Lupi Godinez boxed her ears in in the first three rounds. Forget about the fourth and the fifth. And I did think that Lupi won the fight. I actually scored one of the rounds 10-8 for Godinez in that original three-round uh, set. But holy smokes, really good footwork. Comes out of Titan MMA in Vancouver. She's been training a little bit in Colorado for this one. Her boxing is so good. You go back and watch the BTC fight, her second to last fight. She took on a recognizable name who came in on short notice in Lindsay Garbat. And listen, kudos to Lindsay. She's always there for a fight. She's taken on really good competition. And her cardio is great. Loopy looked like she hadn't even been in a fight at the end of it. Barely a scratch on her face. Now, the Vanessa Demopoulos one, look at a side-by-side -side of both of their faces. They had a war. 
But for Godinez, good takedown defense. When she was on top or if she ever got into any bad spot, she was able to get out of them. Vanessa Demopoulos put her in that crazy kind of triangle that she got Sam Hughes in. Godinez was able to get out of it. Really, really like the game of, again, the Canadian-Mexican fighter that's fought for Combate in the past, that fought for LFA, the former champ. It's a really tough ask to come in on short notice and take on such a big name like Jessica Penne. It'll be really interesting to see what Jessica Penne even looks like. So, Godinez, former BTC and LFA strawweight champion. She trains out of the Vancouver area, Team Titan, Titan MMA. And again, when she got ready for her last fight, that was on relatively short notice. She ends up taking on Jessica Penne, who was supposed to be taking on Hannah Goldie. And for Lupe Godinez, it, it, it would have been a great win. It really would have. Huge name in Jessica Penne, somebody that was a former Invicta champ as well, but also fought for the title in the UFC. And Matt... That fight was a weird bucket of muscles. It wasn't great. I thought Lupe Godinez won, along with the majority of people out there, but all it does is take the judges, Michael Bell and Derek Cleary, to score that fight. 29-28 Penne, and it crushed my hopes and dreams for Lupe. Whether it crushes your hopes and dreams or not, there's a lot of concerning things about that performance, and just about Lupe Godinez as a prospect moving forward. Here's the thing. If you have a very close fight with a fighter who we both called washed, and a fighter who had spent years away from the sport, I do have real concerns about you against other top-level fighters in this division, because Godinez... Again, if you want to say she won that fight, you do have a pretty good argument to it. I'm not going to stay here saying, oh, she definitely deserved it, because it was pretty close at the end of the day. The thing that, or the massive advantage that Loopy's going to have in this fight compared to Sam Hughes, though, is going to be her speed. The problem with Sam Hughes, and just kind of her game as a whole, in the UFC at least, that we've seen, is... How did Tisha Torres beat her? Her hand speed was so much faster than Sam Hughes, it wasn't even funny. Loma Lukbunmi made it an MMA fight, oddly enough, but still, Sam Hughes has always shown that speed can be a bit of an issue for her. When I look at Sam Hughes, I kind of think of a smaller Alexis Davis to a certain degree. I just think that she's going to kind of eat some shots to give her own, and that's always going to be a component of her game. That's the big thing about Lupi Godinez, too, and a big talking point coming into the UFC. You look at Lupi after she fought Vanessa Demopoulos, and again, if you want to play MMA math, Let's play it because one woman has a win over Demopolis and one has a loss. Now, it's interesting to see how they got into those positions because for Sam Hughes, she wins the first round. The second round, there's what? An illegal up kick? She wins at 10-8. And then in the third round, she gets caught in that weird leg triangle that Demopolis is definitely known for. Why is she known for it? Because she tried the same thing against Lupi Godinez, who gets out of it, wins the first round easily, wins the second round easily, wins the third round easily, doesn't win the fourth round, doesn't win the fifth round. But still, for Godinez, great three rounds against Demopolis. For Sam Hughes, she just kind of gets caught in that when she took it to the ground, which she shouldn't have, but something that you have to learn from Matt. I talked about this in the past. For Hughes, the one thing that I love is the fact that she was a track and field and cross-country athlete in college. I want to get it right. It's Wofford. I always thought it was Wofford growing up. I always, you know, you see them. It's Wofford. But no, it's Wofford. And for Sam Hughes, cardio for days. Somebody that can just strike in volume. Maybe the speed isn't there, but... Both of these women give one to take one. Godinez definitely hits harder, I would say, from everything that I've but, seen. But she will eat a shot. And the one fight that I'll say kind of bucked the trend in that was her third to last fight against Lindsey Garbat, a known MMA fighter that's fought a very high level of competition. I know her record was 6-5 and five in that fight, but go back and look at Garbat's record. And that was a fight where she did a ton of damage, and you look at her face after the fight, and it looks the same as, you know, she did at the start of it.
I really think Footwork's going to be the key to this fight for Godinez. Because if she can avoid just the constant pressure of Sam Hughes, she should be able to just tag and move. Tag and move. I'm not saying it'll be the most aesthetically pleasing fight if she fights that way, but it should result in a win. Because Sam Hughes does have trouble cutting off the cage. She will follow her opponent quite a bit, and it has been a struggle for her. Now, if Godinez is able to land on the outside effectively, it's going to be great. If Sam Hughes is starting to wear on her, though, with her pressure, I could see Sam Hughes having one of those Alexis Davis type performances and I bring that name up because we're gonna uh, preview the Agapova Sabina Mazza fight later on but how did that fight go? Mazza was the better MMA fighter I would say than Alexis Davis but Alexis Davis never stops moving forward. You feel it when you fight Alexis Davis. She exerts a type of pressure. It gives you that lump in your stomach when you're watching the fight like Alexis stop. Yes yeah, stop eating so many shots Alexis but it is effective. Eventually that pressure does finally pay off. And I could see this being a very similar performance from Sam Hughes. If Hughes is able to cut the cage off a little bit more effectively, if she is able to maybe clinch up a little bit with Godinez in some of those clinching exchanges, I could see her slowly wearing on Godinez as this fight moves on. And I could see at least an avenue or a game plan for Sam Hughes to have some success. To me, I actually like Sam Hughes and her footwork when I went back and watched a lot of her wins. So I was good with Hughes' footwork. I think this is a very evenly matched fight. Again, I know for Godinez, she lose the shine because of the loss hopefully i picked you up with a rookie review for sam hughes i know she lost to loma look me who's really an atom weight but you could say i mean like there's a lot of women at 115 in the ufc that are just there because there's not an atom weight division much. so i think that's a fair argument you could make sitting at home but i won't make your mind up for you that's for you to decide when i look at the odds matt godina has open a minus 150 favorite she's minus 210 Right now, for Sam Hughes, she opened a plus 130. She's now at a plus 169. If we look at topology, I don't know what the votes are. You don't know what the votes are, so let's have a look. Wow. Holy smokes. <laughs> 772 total votes, 92% going Godinez, 89% by decision. For the 8% that I've used, 71% by decision. Matt, I think we made a pretty good argument, honestly. Like, it sounds like Pat's for Patrick, but I think we did. For either woman to win this fight, I see it as very close. And those odds are relatively close. To me, I think Kadinas has the X factors of a little bit more in terms of punching power. I like her footwork. Give one to take one, I think works in her favor in this one. And if the fight has to go to the mat, Kadinas might not be great off of her back, but offensively with the takedowns and once she gets on top, Kadinas is a mother frigger. So for me, I've got Lupita Kadinas, the Mexican-Canadian in this one. I agree with your prediction, but I'm going to say this. I don't think she has the highest ceiling in this division, if I'm being completely honest. I know we hype this up as saying, oh, she does have a high ceiling. If she was able to win that fight over Penne, then maybe you get another type of a prospect next coming off a win, and maybe you can start building on that. I temper my expectations a little bit for Godinez moving forward. Just, I don't love what I've seen from her up until this point. She might be able to completely prove me wrong. Many fighters have in the past. It's just, I don't really know if when I look at Godinez, I look at a future top 10 fighter in this division. But that's, I still think she'll be able to get the win. That's like when JSP lost the lows on. You gotta get that shine off. Yeah, it, you can... <laughs> My mind won't get changed until you go out there and change it for me. So if Godinez does look really impressive, then yeah, I'll change my mind on her. It's just, I do think she's going to struggle physically with a lot of fighters in this weight division. And I think that her style of striking against those upper echelon strikers in this division, because you have to remember, there's people like Yoani and Jacek in this division that you have to go through eventually. So I think she is a bright prospect, but I do think there's some other fighters in the mix. Not often we pick fighters representing Canada in certain respects, but both of us going with Lupi Lapita Godinez. 
Martinez to get the win. Can't wait for these fights. And in this division, way up at the top, Mackenzie Dern taking on Marina Rodriguez in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. When Charles Rosa is passed across the table, the bout sheet, to have to fight another grappler, he must listen to Pass Me By by the Fireside because this one just hurts and it hurts at my soul. Charles Rosa, Boston Strong, is going to be taking on the Leech. And it's not Lee Jingliang who's got a big fight coming up against one Hamza Chimaev. No, he's going to be taking on Damon Jackson. I'm at... Damon Jackson is one of the premier back takers and grapplers that we have at 145 pounds. And you look at the list of names that he's fought the first time he was in the UFC, the second time he's in the UFC, when he did different runs with different organizations, it's been a very high level of competition for Damon Jackson. While he wasn't hasn't won all of those fights, he's won more than he's lost. 18-4 and won the total record for him. And for Charles Rosa, 14-5. and five. But you look at it, the fights he's had in the UFC... Three fight of the nights, one performance bonus when he beat Manny Bermudez in one of the weirdest endings to a fight I've seen since Manny Bermudez, Bruce Boynton in Portland, Maine. When I was cage side for his NEF appearance, that was a weird one. But Matt, when I look at this fight, again, I make the far side joke, but for Charles Rosa, it's like, yep, I'm just a sucker for punishment. Let's go up against another grappler. He's been training out of ATT Sunrise as well as Sanford MMA from what I've seen over on the Instagrams. I had him out of, uh, I think it was American Combat Sport, which is a gym that like he's a part of down in Florida. But listen, he's a guy that's made the move from Boston to Florida and it's worked out for him. And if you look at it in his last five fights, yes, he's lost two fights. One to Bryce Mitchell, one to Derek Minner, where he got out grappled. And that's why I keep making these references. But the wins in the last five, Manny Bermudez, Kevin Aguilar, and Justin Janes. I have a lot of notes on this one as far as the way that he lost and so on and so forth. But what's your assessment of Charles Rosa coming in to take on such a sneaky grappler in Damon Jackson? And all you have to do is queue up that Mursad Bektish win. I honestly think this could be fight of the night when things are all said and done. Because... Charles Rosa has one of those fun types of style. He relies on his movement. His striking is more of a karate style, but his specialty is jujitsu. There's not a lot of other fighters on the roster who have those type of attributes or that kind of a background. And with Damon Jackson, I feel like the best way to describe his game, it's sort of a cheap comp, but it's an easy one. He is the featherweight Gerald Mearshart. There you go. He's got great forward pressure. Yeah, he's a little stiff with his striking. His striking might not look great, but it is fairly effective when he is moving forward. And yes, some of those top-level strikers can, you know, get on the inside of him. They can outstrike him on the outside as well. But when Damon Jackson is at his best is when he's pressuring forward with combinations, throwing with a lot of volume, and just making his opponent feel the pace of his fight. Because like you mentioned with the Bektich fight, he wasn't even doing well against Bektich for the first two rounds. He was getting beat up. But... Got taken down seven of nine attempts in that one. But the great thing about Damon Jackson is that every single one of those takedown attempts from Bektich is an opportunity for Jackson to get him in a submission. Tried seven of them. Exactly. And the good thing about Jackson is he does have great defensive submissions. It's not only the guillotine. He can do darts chokes from it. He can reverse you and get on top. Like, he's a really tricky grappler. And the great thing about Jackson, too, is his frame for this division. When guys are trying to take him down and when he's really wide at his base up against the cage... 
Guys will leave their neck out, and Shaxx just has a really good feel for that guillotine. Uh, again, Gerald Mearstrip, another guy's kind of like Nick Lentz. Nick Lentz will c almost let you take him down sometimes, just to almost let you feel safe with it, and then, next thing you know, you get caught up into a submission. I think this will be a really, really fun fight, and I could see this fight getting finished in 10 different ways. There's a universe where Charles Rosa goes out there, hits Damon Jackson with a hard right hand, and finish him, finishes him with an armbar on the mat. There's another world where Damon Jackson just puts so much pressure on Charles Rosa that he wins the first round, wins the second round, and by the third round, Rosa's movement is so compromised that Jackson just takes him down and ground and pounds him. Like, these are the avenues that this fight could take, and there's so many different ones. So out of the last four fights for Rosa, that excludes that Manny Bermudez submission win. I went through, I did MMA decisions, I went back and watched the fights, and then after I was done that, I looked at the stats for them. When he fought Bryce Mitchell, he got absolutely dominated. It wasn't even close. I've never seen a 30-25 where it was all grappling. But Almost twisted him like seven times. That happened. It was weird. Then he takes on Kevin Aguilar. Again, that was a decision win. Dave Hagen was asleep in the second round of that one. Credit where it's due. Well, that's the opposite of it. Then he took on Derek Minner. It was a 10-8 third round for Minner. And then his last time out, he takes on Justin Janes. Janes rallied late because I think that was the fight where he put all the money on himself. And that was that. So... For Rosa, he struggled in certain respects. He's a guy that doesn't really have the greatest takedown defense in UFC history. Actually, it's 37%. That's that's pretty bad. And Charles Rosa is not one of those guys whose jujitsu is so good that I'm okay with that Like number. Mackenzie Dern. Exactly. There's fighters like Mackenzie Dern. There's fighters like Brian Ortega, who you might just look at their takedown defense numbers and you're like, wow, that's not very good. But then you actually understand, okay, well, those are fighters who don't mind getting taken down. With Rosa, it is kind of different because we have seen him get out grappled. Now, a couple of times at the UFC level. When just Bryce Mitchell does it, that's fine. Bryce Mitchell is a very unique style of grappling. It's just different but when Derek Minner goes out there and not only holds you down but holds you down and beats you up while he does it that's when I have real concerns about that number for his takedown defense the guys that have taken Charles Rosa down I've taken the liberty let's hear about it Dennis Seaver took him down Sean Soriano took him down Yair Rodriguez took him down uh Kyle Bokniak took him down Manny Bermudez did but then he got submitted Bryce Mitchell Minner and Justin Janes and that's not every Charles Rosa fight but we're getting close to it again a lot of performance bonuses very fun style. Damon Jackson, 1-2-1 one, one with a no contest and two stints in the UFC. That no contest was a loss to Hani Jason, who ended up testing positive for diuretics. So it is what it is. And he lost to Kevin Aguilar. Charles Rosa beat Kevin Aguilar. MMA math says Charles Rosa is going to win. Again, to me, Rosa's game little bit more complete in terms of overall MMA. Damon Jackson, much more of a specialist that strikes to get in close to try and submit you. And once it's on the mat, very, very sketchy. Just like a guy like Mearshart. The other thing about Jackson is he can kind of build up as the fight goes on. Where Rosa can either stay the same or just kind of peter off a little bit at the end. So we'll see what happens in this one. But to me, it's a really tight fight. It is a really tough fight. And I can see it going one of two ways. Either it looks a lot like Gavin Tucker when he fought Billy Q, where it was Charles Rosa. His footwork's just so good, and he's so good at darting in and out that the forward pressure of Damon Jackson never really does matter. He's never able to cut off the cage. He's never able to get a good angle on Rosa, so he can't actually chase him down to get a hold of him. And Rosa just kind of walks his way to a 30-27. The flip side, though, could be... 
Even look at Gerald Mearshart versus Mahmoud Muradov. Like, when Mearshart gets hit, eats a few shots, but when the pressure does start to pay off, when the opponent does start to panic, and when he does start to, okay, it's all or nothing on my punches, it's all or nothing on my takedown attempts, like, the, the pressure gets to guys in a way that makes them uncomfortable, and I do see that being the way of this fight. I think Damon Jackson's gonna use his pressure, put a crazy pace on Charles Rosa that he's not really used to or not comfortable with, and I think he can win this fight the longer it goes. I'm not saying it's gonna look good early on. I think Rosa might even take down Jackson and look good in some grappling exchanges, but I do think that by the end of the fight, Jackson will be the more fresher fighter, and I do think he'll be able to get the win. The odds for this one are kind of strange. Rosa open a minus 180 favorite. He's a plus 145 underdog for Damon Jackson. Open a plus 155. He's a minus 174. Best fight odds, Matt. We haven't looked at the topology votes. Over under 65% Rosa. I think they're going to be... Oh, I think they're going to be 65 for Jackson. Wow. 729 total votes. 63% going with Jackson. 70% by decision. The 37% that have Rosa, 68% by decision. For that reason, I, I like Charles Rosa in this fight. Again... Damon Jackson's a guy that beat Mursad Bekdic, who just kept taking him down. He was comfortable. There were submission attempts, but they didn't work out. You look at the names, too, that Jackson was matched up with before this fight. He was supposed to fight TJ Laramie, who withdrew. He was supposed to fight Luke Sanders. Well, he would have beat him. Then Jackson couldn't make it. He lost to Ilya Tapria, who doesn't fight anything like Charles Rosa does. The wins before that, Bekdic, which was huge, especially in a comeback. He was almost a 3-1 to one underdog, and he won a performance sure bonus in that one. Before that, more Chalet, and before that, Mavlid Haibulev with one of the most disgusting knockouts you've ever seen. Good wins before that. Jennerman, Jeremy Spoon, a guy who has a little bit of a padded record, and so on and so forth. But in this fight, I like Rosa for the movement. I like him for the striking, and I think he's going to do enough on the feet to win this fight. Obviously, I said, I said the same thing. You know what goes on? Jackson's going to be the fresher guy. Jackson's got those uh, submission attempts, so on and so forth. To me, I look at it and I go, well, Mitchell couldn't do it. Minner couldn't do it. What makes me believe that Damon Jackson could do it? I know he's a grappler to that nth degree, especially in this division, especially with his body they type. They couldn't do it. They both like 30-25 Charles Rosa. I've said this, but I like Rosa with the striking. I like him with his cardio in the first two rounds. As long as in the third round, he doesn't I, fall off a cliff okay. and get submitted. I like Charles Rosa. I was going to say, I can agree with everything you said up until I like the cardio of Charles Rosa. Not in this fight, I don't, whatsoever. If Damon Jackson is able to fight his type of fight, if he is putting the pressure on Rosa, if Rosa is having trouble with his movement, then I do see Jackson, I'm not going to say TKOing Charles Rosa, but I do think he'll be able to put enough strikes up against the cage to force Charles Rosa to become the wrestler, and I think that's the big key in this fight. I don't mean that Damon Jackson's going to then just turn around and guillotine him on the first takedown attempt, but I think the fact that Damon Jackson, if he can get Charles Rosa to become a grappler first, then that's when his game will really open up. So I will pick Jackson in this. I like his volume on the feet a little bit more than I like Rosa's. And this is the last thing I'll say about Charles Rosa. I just don't like the synergy of his game. There's some guys who everything in their MMA game just kind of works together. Like Dan Hooker, for instance. Dan Hooker has great long-range weapons. He has great weapons on the end tight when you try to take him down. And he's a good grappler. When I look at the game of Charles Rosa, it's... You're an okay striker on the outside, but you're not good enough of a striker to really win 15 consistent minutes on the outside. You're a good but not great wrestler, so it's going to be tough for you to wrestle a lot of guys. It's just, there's a lot of question marks with the overall game of Charles Rosa, and that's why I can't pick him in this one. I mean, Damon Jackson's 1-2-1 and one with a no contest in the UFC, so there's got to be question marks there too, and a guy who statistically 
has struck at a lower volume That's than fun. Charles Rosa, but still... At least this game all ties together, though. It's the pressure forces the wrestling, which then helps me get to my grappling. Everything in Damon Jackson's game is to force shots out of his opponent and to make them be a, slappy, or a sloppy grappler. With Rosa, I never really feel like he's setting up the same type of things throughout his fights. We'll have to see what happens. We're in disagreement on the pick. I'm going with ATT Sunrise's Charles Rosa. You're going with Fortis MMA's Damon Jackson. Let us know down below in the comments section. It's tight fight very close one who you have here in the main event Mackenzie Dern taking on Marina Rodriguez you're not going to want to miss it so keep locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it coming up this weekend at heavyweight for the title of most interesting heavyweight and that's a pretty crazy one to try and grab we have Moldova's own Alexander Romanov taking on the mountain Jared Vandera and my you talk about interesting. I don't know what there is to say. Watch the way these guys fight. Watch their post-fight or pre-fight interviews. It's just a whole weird bucket of muscles. It's a whole lot of crazy. It's a cosmic gumbo, some would say, that plays to the the rhythm of jazz. And if you get the I think you should leave reference, I like you. Matt, when I look at this fight, it's straight up weird. Jared Vandera is one of those guys that just wears on people. He just wears on you. You have to hold his weight. He's an old-time heavyweight. He's going to push you up yeah, against. You know. He's going to push his head in. He's going to try and take you down. He's going to land some dirty shots on the inside. And Alexander Romanov, for what it's worth, I don't know if it's a myth. I don't know if it's real. But we got to talk about it. He's got sumo in his back pocket. And the way this guy fights, he expends so much energy in the first two rounds that his last fight out is considered a majority win. Now, I say majority. It's a technical split decision win. So, Matt, I went out there and I wrote it down. And even on the graphic, oh I put T-S-D-E-C-W and an asterisk because he fought Juan Espino. My guy, Juan. Where you at? And you know what? I got to kind of put down the script and, and stop goofing for a little bit. For Juan Espino and everybody from the Canary Islands, if you're out there, hopefully things are going well. I read about the volcano and volcanoes every day and it really it really sucks for those guys so for Juan Espino and for everybody over there hopefully you're doing well for Alexander Romanov looked like he kind of wanted a way out which no. you know, I never say but man that was rough he was gassing hard and it just so happened that an opportunity prevent presented itself sometimes you can hit the balls Craig it just happens like I understand the fight wasn't going his way but this is something that I know I've been I, I, I've been guilty of in the past. And it's, kicked in the nuts? No, it's course correcting my opinion on a fighter because of one performance that they had. I don't think having one weird bad round against Juan Espino when you had bad cardio needs to completely change my opinion about you as a fighter. I think Juan Espino is much better than just some unranked heavyweight out there in the cosmos. I think he is a borderline ranked heavyweight if you just look at his talent and you look at what he's able to do inside of an actual MMA cage. He's a Spaniard whose background is Senegalese wrestling. It's insane. Go ahead. I forget where I was going. Thank you. So, this is the thing about Alexander Romanov, though. If he is able to take his opponent down, he should be able to win his fight. It is as simple as that. His striking isn't very good. His cardio isn't good either. And honestly, his straight wrestling isn't great. His striking is weird, and that's where we got to break it down, because... If you look at it for Alexander Romanov, he's one of those guys that could jump out and throw a front kick at you. He's the type of guy that could throw a spinning back fist or a spinning elbow. He throws a lot of energy into his shots. Obviously, we saw that when you take on such a good wrestler with a base like that in Juan Espino, a guy that trains out of ATT. Now you're taking on Team Quest, Jared Vandera, a guy with good cardio. 
Was it Ellie Goulding who sang that song? There's something in the way you move. Oh, that's Alexander Romanov because there is something in the way he moves. He does kind of move like a bit of a fader. He's got those low hands. He's got that weird shiftiness to his hips. But the difference is that he doesn't have the explosive hand speed of a guy like Fedor Emelianenko. It is interesting because most guys use their footwork to then set up their strikes on the feet. Romanov uses his footwork to just kind of evade the strikes of his opponent and then set up. And I, I wish I could say, oh, he sets up a single leg and then a double leg and changes wrestling. He really only tries to get that belly to belly position. And then from there, he's got his PhD in that position. I know there's some guys like Daniel Cormier. Vitaly Minikov. Exactly. Who from the single leg position, for instance, it's just like, oh, you know, they're going to be able to get the takedown immediately with, uh, with Alexander Romanov. It's that belly to belly. It's just, he has a feel for that position that not many other guys in the UFC do. And it is very unique because every MMA fight, it, there is a position where you're going to be in the clinch with your opponent. And normally that is a bit of a stalling or a bit of a pause position for most guys. That's where Romanov is at his most dangerous. And like you had brought up with Jared Bandera, that's kind of a position that he does invite. He is somebody who likes to get ugly, likes to make the fight dirty and get on the inside. That's what worries me about Bandera in this fight. If he had more of those long-range weapons, and if he was able to just catch Romanov on the outside as he was trying to close the distance for that clinch, I'd like Bandera quite a bit in this fight. My issue is that... Vandera's going to be doing half of Romanov's work for him. If you're the one clinching Romanov, I don't care if you have double underhooks. He has such a good understanding of the position to where he's going to fight his way through. He's going to get to the position he wants, and he's going to be able to take Jared Vandera down. Were you surprised that Jared Vandera nearly doubled the strikes of a striker at heavyweight in Justin Taffa's last time out in a fight of the night, too? It was a really impressive performance, and the great thing that Vandera showed was that he can almost use his volume as a defensive weapon. And... We saw this with Alexander Yusik against Anthony Joshua. I can't believe I'm bringing that up to describe Jared Vandera. But it was true. Everybody talks about how dangerous of a striker Taffa is. And he is dangerous. He's got great power. But if you can overwhelm him with volume, he will just kind of keep his hands up. What that fight proved more than anything was just high fight IQ from Vandera. Yeah, so we come into this fight where Romanov has the wrestling... Vander is a decent wrestler in his own right. You look at it, he was on Contender Series. He beat Harry Hunsucker, who's got a big fight coming up, old Hunsucker. You look at it at the five on in, the loss is Henan Fajaya, who's looked pretty good since then. You've got Tony Lopez that he beat, but that's a rite of passage for a big heavyweight. Sergey Spivak did it. Sergey beat poor Jared Vandera by knockout, and then it was like, well, why, why is he in the UFC again? He beat Tony Lopez. And then he beats Justin Taff in a fight of the night, and he was like, covered in blood it was disgusting you look at the odds for this one gives me a little bit of pause because romanov open a minus 400 favorite he's minus 471 right now vandera open a plus 330s plus 330 or 351 rather and i'm gonna look on topology i'm gonna say over under 90 percent i would agree yep yeah it is so 813 total votes 96 percent romanov 12 by decision 49 percent by submission 33 percent by knockout for the four percent that have vandera 48 percent by knockout matt i think alexander romanov is gonna take jared vandera down take him into the deep waters if sergey spivak could do it i think romanov can do it relatively early however if this gets past the the first half of the second round we're playing in Vandera's playground now and he's probably one of those guys that works out like tires and just all metal stationary farm objects strength, you know yeah he's got farm strength so look out for Jared Vandera to do like a tractor pull and get the win in the later stage of this fight but for me I'm gonna go with Romanov and I'm gonna chalk up that Espino fight to just you know a one-off 
Cross my fingers, cross my toes. The only thing that will lose this fight for Romanov is his cardio. If he could fight a solid 50 minutes at his pace... He's a champ. Th yeah, like most heavyweights are probably screwed at that point. Now, when you do have such great wrestling, there is going to be some negatives that come along with that. And that, unfortunately, is Romanov's cardio. I look at this fight as, Romanov's gonna win this fight unless he decides to lose it. Because if he does go out there and just shoot a crazy amount of takedowns, just go for crazy hip tosses, and if he's not able to secure any of those takedowns after he initially gets them, then I could see a world where Vandera storms back in the third, but I do like Romanov in this fight. Matt, in this fight, we're both going with Moldova's Alexander Romanov to get the win and the title of... Craziest heavyweight and next likely opponent for Alir Latifi. Make there that fight. Winner of this fight gets Alir. That's a that's a good consolation prize, eh? Yikes. Matt, I can't wait for this fight. And the rest of this card in the co-main event at 170 pounds, we have Randy Brown taking on Jared Good. An absolute banger in the main event at Strawweight. Mackenzie Dern, Marina Rodriguez. You're not going to want to miss this. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get into it. it. It's winner go home at 185 pounds. One would assume. Coming up this weekend, we have the Night Wolf, Jamie Pickett. Ah! Taking on the Day Wolf. No, it's Pepe, Loriano, Staropoli, and Matt. When I look at this fight, it's a weird one because of where both of these guys are at. Normally, we save this until the end, but I'm going to mention the odds just to tell the story of this fight. Because for Argentina's fighter, Loriano, he opened a minus 150 favorite. He's a minus 213 right now. For Jamie Pickett, he opened a plus 130. He's a plus 172. And for Jamie Pickett, trains with a bevy of good fighters, Joe Selecki and John Salter among them. I thought Joe Selecki won on the weekend over Jared Gordon. But still, I when I look at this fight... The question I ask is, why is Loriano Staropoli such a big favorite when he's lost his last three to Muslim Salikov, Tim Means, and Roman Delige? Good fighters. Don't get me wrong. All good fighters. Jamie Pickett losing two to Fon Chukwe and Jordan Wright by knockout. And that knockout loss was about four months ago. Still relatively soon, I would think. And it was a quick one, too. But when I look at this fight... Where's all this confidence in Loriano Staropoli, who kind of had his best times at 170 pounds? That really is the strange thing about this fight. When I think about Staropoli, I think of him as a welterweight. I never really put him in the middleweight division because I thought he looked better at 170 pounds. I know he lost to Tim Means, and maybe I think way more about Tim Means than I should, but like, it's not the end of the world. He had a pretty good fight with him, too. And the weird thing about Staropoli is look at his fight with Roman Delizia. You know what was a big issue in that fight? The size of Roman. It was a massive issue for him in that fight. Well, Roman was exactly. coming down from 205 to 185. Yes, like for, for like Fergie famously sang about, they met halfway. The thing about Staropoli, though, was I thought that after you get out-muscled by a guy at 185 pounds and you have shown the ability to fight down at 170, you would then go back to the smaller weight class. It's kind of like Misha Serkinov. If Misha Serkinov ever fights at 185 pounds again, everybody around him should get fired tomorrow because he moved down in weight. His cardio looked bad. He didn't really... You know what I mean? Like, there was a lack of aggression, if you will. And I would say that that... You could point to the weight cut as a factor. With Staropoli... I think his size always is going to be a factor with him at 185 pounds. And unless he is able to just put such a crazy pace on these middleweights, I, I don't really know where all the success is going to come from at middleweight. And even with Jamie Pickett, like, Jamie Pickett's performance against Chuck Wade didn't look good at all. And then if you look at the right fight, 
like you said, it was over pretty quick, so you can't really take much from it. But I don't really love the fact that he is coming back so quick after such a flash knockout like that. Because I normally say, hey, six months is like the perfect test for past six months. Then you can come back after a knockout loss. I don't love the damage that Pickett has taken throughout his last two fights. I just don't really know what either guy is supposed to be doing in when, this division. When you look at Jamie Pickett, he was on the first episode of Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series in 2017. He lost to Charles Bird. He got finished in that one. Then he comes back in season 2019. I don't know what you want to call it. How did season, that go, Craig? Season three, lost by decision to Punaheli Soriano. That's going to happen. <sighs> Then he comes back in season 2020, so that's season four, and he knocks out Jonathan Patti with, a, as Dana White put it, a 22-punch combo. But it was insane. It really was insane. So then they match him up with Tafan Chukwe, a guy who had a win over William Knight, who won on Contender Series. And you looked at that fight and you went, well, why? And then the scores were 30-25 and two 30-26s. That's not great. No. Then they give him Jordan Wright, who... I'm just, we're talking out loud here. We're having fun. The guy knocks people out and he gets knocked out and he's fought guys with bad records and he lost to Joaquin Buckley. So there, let the chips fall where they may, but he knocks out Jamie Pickett. So I look at that. I worry about it a little bit. Looks like he's been training his jiu-jitsu a little bit. So that's great to see. But from Pickett, decent striking when he's outside and when he moves in, he has a lot of success or he gets hit with that shot. For Loriano Staropoli, out of the fights that he had, he was 7-1 coming into the UFC with all of his wins by finish. Then he won two decisions, one over Hector Aldana. That won him a fight of the night bonus. So that's pretty cool. You get to start it off pretty good. Then he beat Thiago Alves by My decision. God. That's great. And then you look at it. They give him Muslim Salikov. Well, listen, maybe he didn't have the greatest, or he did have the greatest fight against Francisco Trinaldo. Muslim Salikov is one of the most classically trained, best strikers you're going to find out there at 170 pounds. The scores in that fight, Matt, 30-26, 30-26, 29-28. It was a 10-8 round two. Then he takes on Tim Means, 30-27, 29-28, 29-28. Okay, so he had one good round. Then, in his last fight, Roman Delige, all three 30-27s. And the problem in the Means fight and in the Delige fight, the pressure really caused Staropoli issues with the takedown attempts, and, but also just getting in close. And I was going to say, it was very different types of pressure. And that's an important thing to say. It'd be different if it was just one thing has worked really well against him in the past. But you're 100% right. With Tim Means, he pressured with his volume, and then he mixed in his wrestling a little bit. With Delize, he was just all over you at all times with his footwork and then mixing in the wrestling. So no, I think that's a really good point to mention when you do bring up the game of Staropoli, because he feels like one of those fighters who, when he's the one moving forward, he could have a ton of success but when he's the one being pressured I don't know if he's just always thinking about what has to come next when he is the one on the back foot but there always seems to be a gap between the fighter in Staropoli who's moving forward and the guy who's moving backwards Jamie Pickett also has a giant reach advantage in this fight to go along with a slight advantage in height he's the middleweight to me Staropoli had that one fight against Delige up at 185 pounds but I know him as a welterweight so I look at the odds I scratch my head when you have Staropoli more than a 2-to-1 favorite in this one. I look at the topology votes that I haven't looked at yet. I hit the wrong button on the computer, so that makes it fun listening and fun viewing. We'll have a look at them. Yeah, I mean, 745 total votes, 73% with the Argentinian, 81% by decision. For the 27% that have Pickett, it's 53% by decision, 41% by knockout. So, Matt, I don't love that Jamie Pickett got knocked out four and a half months ago, but again... 
It's four and a half months to let your brain heal. It was fairly early. Now you're taking on a guy who's also reeling, I would say. You lose three in a row, you're reeling. Loriano Stropoli training out of shoot the box down in Brazil. And you see, and you know, I say that. It's like training at ATT, but you only train with Bob in the back. And you're training with the amateurs. For Staropoli, a lot of the pictures are actually him hitting mitts with Charles Oliveira and a little bit of recently released Thomas Almeida in there, for what it's worth. There you go. Good guys to be training with. We're going to look dumb no matter who we predict, Craig. I just kind of figured this is going to be one of those fights where no matter what we say, it's not going to look good. I'm ever so slightly going to pick Staropoli. Now, I understand Staropoli. I don't love the odds. I don't love him at middleweight. There's not a lot that I like about this fight, if I'm being completely honest. But... He has shown the ability to be a good pressure fighter when he is the person moving forward. And the thing about Jamie Pickett is that if he does get off to, if you build a lead on him, he just kind of lets you. He doesn't fight with a crazy amount of volume that really lets him get back into fights if you have developed a lead. So I think if Staropoli can win that first round, it's going to be really key. But I think if he is able to do that, he'll be able to get a win. I have a really hard time with this fight too. I mean, you look at it, that Pati win was so good for Jamie Pickett. That one was back in 2019. So he hasn't won a fight in almost two years. You look at that one too. And I mean, listen, Jonathan Pati, say whatever you want about it, but it's a fight that happened. So there's that, right? I guess that was actually in 2020. Pati, kind of the same size as a Loriano Staropoli as well. So it is a tricky one. I'm going to go with the Nightwolf in this one just because of the length and the size, but the guy doesn't have the greatest chin. And if you have a guy in Staropoli that kind of finds the powers that brought him to the UFC, he's able to get some of those finishes or at least string together some good combinations and a little bit of power. He's got a great opportunity to win over Pickett. But again, I like Pickett in terms of his kicks and I like him in terms of his pressure. If he throws together maybe even a little bit of wrestling if it's existent in this fight, if he can work in some of his jiu-jitsu, I think he's going to have a little bit of success. But is Jamie Pickett on the same level as Muslim Salikov, Tim Means, and Roman Delice? We were hanging out here, and then we we're hanging out. So here's here, and then there, and now we're way not there anymore. So this is a big test for both guys, but I don't like Staropoli at a minus 200 in this fight, so I'm going to go with Jamie Pickett here. I don't love the odds, but yeah, I'll stick with the Staropoli pick. Matt going with the Argentinian. I've got the American. You let me know if I'm crazy. You let me know what you're thinking down below in the comments section, and we will have you updated after these guys face off at question mark kicks. Maybe there's a change of pick. I don't know. Tune in two hours before the prelims to find out on Saturday, and make sure you check out the rest of the videos for this card up at the top. Dern taking on Rodriguez. You're not going to want to miss this. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's get into it. Low-key, absolute banger at 135 pounds. We have Chris Gutierrez taking on Felipe Claris. And I'm going to start with Felipe Claris because I have a lot to say about Chris Gutierrez. Felipe Claris, pleasant surprise in the UFC. I mean, you look at it and is it the sexiest record that he's had since he entered the promotion? No, he lost to Geraldo de Freitas by decision. He beat Domingo Plarte by split decision. Son of fire. Did I think he should have won that fight more handily? Yeah, because Son of Fire didn't look great in the UFC. Then he loses to Montel Jackson. That's forgivable. I don't care. Jesse Strader yeah. lost to Montel Jackson. He was Aaron Carter's boxing coach. So take that for what it's worth. And then he beat Luke Sanders. And in that fight, Felipe Claris showed me two things. He's tough as a $2 steak. He's willing to give one to take one. And this guy can rally back in a fight. And for Felipe Claris, I learned a lot in that one. I knew he was a fast striker. I knew he was good on the outside. 
I know Luke Sanders has a tendency to slow down a little bit. The stats might not actually support that. And I'm going to talk about the stats a lot in this fight, which is something that I don't do very often whatsoever. That's where the channel started. But it's not that important when you make videos like this. It really isn't. But for Felipe Claris, I love his striking. I don't love, love him on the ground. But he has decent jiu-jitsu to go along with it. It's just his takedown defense isn't all that good. For Chris Gutierrez, since losing his UFC debut by submission against Howney Barcelos, I mean... Other than a 10-8 round against Cody Durden, this guy's looked unstoppable. Like, he's been insane. I'll let you go, but I have the numbers here. I was going to say, Gutierrez doesn't even look like the same fighter who had that UFC debut. He spent time with different promotions, like, I'd say major regional promotions. I think if Chris Gutierrez was able to string together some fights and fight with more regularity, this is a guy that... Maybe not a household name, but a hardcore name of that's a guy you got to watch every single time. I think he is, but if you don't, like if you're out there and you're watching me going, man, Craig, you pumped the tires of fighters in the prelims of a bad fight night card, I'd say, whoa, whoa, you got to watch this one. It's a good fight. You're 100% right. The thing about Chris Gutierrez that you have to love is the leg kicks. It's obvious. It's like the first thing that jumps out on the page. Now, the thing that I love about his leg kicks, though, is that he doesn't just throw them because that's sort of the meta in MMA right now. That's the modern trend. He throws them because it sets up the rest of his game, and that's not often something we see further down on the prelims of a fight night card like you had said. You want those numbers? Let's hear them. I'll give you those numbers. This is Chris Gutierrez through every single fight that he's had under the UFC banner, including his loss to Honey Barcelos. 65% of the strikes he threw in that fight were leg kicks. Now I'm going to go on. The percentage always goes with leg kicks. Against McDonald, 47% of his strikes. Against DeFreitas, 50% of his strikes. Against Morales, 60% of his strikes. That was the win. TKO due to leg kicks. Against Cody Durden, 43%. Against Andre Ewell, 46%. And he buckled those small legs. And I say that. Andre Ewell, Matt Allen, Craig Allen, very similar, similar body types. So when I look at that... Chris Gutierrez is probably, and I think, you know what? We can crown him. He's the ketchup chip champion. He's wow. the Canadian ketchup chip champion of leg kicks. That's all I have right in front of me. That, and I got a, I guess I got another prop. We'll slow it down. A Carlos Newton shoe with Fight Night Picks. That's pretty cool. Jordan won. Had that made by Kenny. Craig's just showing off stuff that he has now. Great stuff. Point I have, Chris Gutierrez is one of the best leg kickers out there. Also has pretty good wrestling. Has decent hands that I think with time might get a little bit better at Factory X. I'd like to see them improve a little bit more. But the problem that he had against Cody Durden was that early grappling in that fight. And it really was. But here's the thing. Cody, Gur uh, Cody Durden is a very tricky grappler. And if you're going to get 10 aided it's probably because he's going to mix you up on the ground, turn you into a pretzel. The thing that Gutierrez showed, though, was he can get through that adversity and still look really good in the back stages of that fight. The thing I will say about Gutierrez and his hands, though, I do think we are starting to see a little bit of the progression in his boxing because up until that Andre Ewell fight, and here's the thing. I wasn't completely sold on Gutierrez until that last performance. Because Listen, I picked Yule in that one. John Anik talked about both guys' custody battles. It was just a weird one. It was a weird fight. And the thing about Yule is that he's a really dangerous striker on the outside. But Gutierrez used that against him. He knew that on the outside, that's where I can attack you with my calf kick. And once he did destroy that front leg of Andre Yule, that's when he was able to mix in his own boxing. And he was doing really well in pure boxing against a guy like Andre Yule. And if you're able to out-punch somebody like Andre Yule, I do think that it is starting to show a little bit of the progression in the hands of Chris Gutierrez. Now, 
against Felipe Calaris, he's going to have to get those leg kicks going early and often. But that kind of has to be said on every single Chris Gutierrez fight. I do think that the start is going to be important, though, because when we talk about leg kicks, when we talk about body shots, those techniques are effective in the fifth round, but they're a lot better in the first round because they have an accumulatory effect on your opponent. When you land things like leg kicks and body shots, they hurt your opponent and they slow them down. And that's what I think Gutierrez has to do because this is the thing I worry about with Gutierrez on the feet. Yes, he's a good striker. He's got good power. He can get outpaced and he can get outworked. If there's a fighter in there, exactly, who can move on the feet a lot. Like, if he ever fought your boy, Douglas uh, Silva de Andrade, like, that would be a crazy fight. But Gutierrez would really have to watch with some of those boxing and some of the power shots of De Silva up the middle. I'm not saying those are similar shots that Kolaris can land, but if Kolaris is able to just be the faster guy with his hands on the outside, I think he can have a lot of success early on, even though he is a big underdog. Well, that's the thing. I mean, for Felipe Kolaris, he is really fast with his hands. And if you look at the odds, Gutierrez open to minus 250 favorite. He's minus 266 right now. For Kolaris open to plus 210, he's roughly about there right now. If we look at the topology picks... Like, just about every fight on this card so far, they're not even close. 96% Gutierrez, 80% by decision for the 4% that have Claris, 58, 56% by decision, something around there. And yeah, when I look at this one, to me, MMA math. One guy beat Geraldo de Freitas, one guy lost to him, albeit Chris Gutierrez only beat him by split, but that's the thing. Geraldo de Freitas is another one of those guys that you never hear about, and then you watch him fight, and it's like, oh... Well, this guy's kind of fun. He's kind of different for this division. I like Gutierrez in this one. But if I saw a Felipe Claris win, if I could envision it, tall stance, keeping his hands out there, moving his legs back, doing a good job of staying out of the way of some of those kicks. Like Johnny Walker, when he fought Tiago Santos, when he missed the kicks, when he when he was able to kind of move back and out of the way, I could see Claris doing that. But instead of doing what Johnny Walker did, which was stare at himself in the mirror, it's actually going out and using your hands. I like Gutierrez in this one to set things up. It was something that I wasn't totally sold on when he fought Andre Yule, which is why I picked Yule in that one. I thought, hey, well, he knows he's going to get kicked. So he's going to do something about it. But listen, when you're in the cage, it's different than when you're talking into a computer. I like Gutierrez in this fight. Line scares me, like, pretty much every fight on this one. But I am going with Gutierrez. He should fight Randy Costa next, too. Matt wants Gutierrez to either fight the Zohan or who's the other name? Douglas Silva de Andrade. I'd love to see either one of those fights. And for Felipe Claris, maybe the Gaetano Perellos of the world. If hey, Dana White, give us a job. We're doing yours for you. Yeah, yikes. Matt, I absolutely love this fight, though. Both of us going with Chris Gutierrez. You're not going to want to miss Question Mark Kicks. It's on Saturday, two hours before the prelims. We get a final look at the fights. If there's any changes, if there's any weight misses, we get the action in there. And you can have your say in the comments section, as you always do. Down below, let us know who you have. Gutierrez, Calaris, and up at the top, Dern taking on Rodriguez. You're not going to want to miss it, so keep it locked in. With Fight Night Picks, as we always say, let's get into it. Interesting fight coming up this weekend. It's scheduled for middleweight. We have Megatron, Calvin Johnson, trying to catch balls for Matthew Stafford for the Detroit Lions in the mid-2000s. No, we don't. It's Megatron Phil Haas taking on Deron Wynn and Matt. While the picture and the graphic that we made up for this week, I made it look a little bit funny. It's not that funny. It's no joke. Deron Wynn is actually five foot six. I measured him with a tape. 
I'm just taking it on faith that ESPN and the UFC are legit with their height measurements. But we're going to find out on Friday when these two guys weigh in. And hopefully successfully, Duran Wynn's last fight was at a catchweight of 195 when he took on Antonio Hoyo. One of the most frustrating fights ever because if you're a Duran Wynn fan, he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and just held position. And if you're an Antonio Hoyo fan, you threw things at your TV because the guy could have struck with him and he had opportunities. But you could say that about every single an Antonio Hoyo fight that he's had in the UFC, and now he's gone. For Deron Wynn, the wins that he's had, and listen, the guy's 2-2 two and two in the promotion. He beat Eric Spicely in a fight of the night, and they struck, which is weird. It was a really good fight, too. He lost to Darren Stewart by split decision. He lost by submission to Gerald Mearshart. He beats Antonio Hoyo. The two guys that he's beat are no longer in the UFC. For Deron Wynn, this is the weirdest thing. Deron Wynn, when he steps into the UFC octagon, he will become a member a member of the all-active light heavyweight team. He will be in the rankings as far as their stat leaders are concerned. And the reason being, you have to have five fights in the UFC. So as soon as he steps foot in there, unless something happens to Phil Haas, he enters in as the number six participant with most takedowns in active UFC light heavyweight history, tied at 19 with Alexander Gustafson in four fights where he didn't take Eric Spicely down. In three fights, he's been able to do what some guys take their whole career to do that are still in the UFC, mind you. Deron Wynn is a practical wrestler. He's taken on an MMA wrestler in Phil Hawes this weekend. Deron Wynn started the whole, oh, you're Jerry's brother, sing us a song type of a trend in MMA. Because, do, 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 do. see, because before Deron Wynn came along, it wasn't that often that we had, hey, Oh, you train with this guy? Well, you could probably fight in the UFC. And then Daniel Cormier became champ champ. And then Teron Wynn became one of the most hyped up middleweights in the whole UFC division. Really the organization because... Some would say the Martin Sano of 185. Exactly. Because that is how Wynn was marketed when he came into the UFC. It was, oh, you've spent your whole life wrestling with Daniel Cormier. You're a really good boxer too. Like, he was almost AKA's version of Aaron Pico. When Aaron Pico was with uh, Freddie Roach and then when he went down to Jackson's, it was, wow. This guy has all the skills. He now just needs the MMA experience. And I'm going to harp on you a little bit because you put a lot of stock into his win over one filthy Tom Lawler on a Oscar De La Hoya promoted card. And I got to be honest, that didn't prove anything to me. And Deron Wood coming into the UFC hasn't really looked like that same fighter that he showed against Tom Lawler. They had a fight of the night. That's fine against Eric Spicely, who's been in the UFC like Ric Flair's held the world title. It's like happened. Eric you might like him, Craig. It doesn't mean he's great. This is the problem with Deron Wynn. He really only goes in there to wrestle a lot of the time. And I know people like to say that about some fighters. Oh, he's just a wrestler. But normally it is a massive exaggeration. With Deron Wynn, it isn't. He goes into the cage to wrestle. And like you said, he didn't wrestle at all against Eric Spicely. But that is the anomaly in his career. The majority of the time, he fights more like Cody Stamen. It's, I'm going to get my head out of trouble. I'm just going to stand so far away that my opponent can't hit me. Or going to be so close that I'm wrestling my opponent. Phil Haas has shown the ability to defend takedowns and outstrike primary wrestlers in the past. Look at Kyle Dawkins. Kyle Dawkins, he's a pretty good grappler himself. And I would honestly say Kyle Dawkins has slightly more skills on the feet. 
just in terms of like range finding weapons and whatnot. Yeah, so if you look at it for Phil Haas, if you're a numbers guy, if you're a numbers gal, if you're a numbers person, you look at it for Phil Haas, it says 100% takedown defense, but only Kyle Dawkins was the one that tried to take him down out of any of his UFC or UFC adjacent fights. That includes Contender Series, and Dawkins went 0 for 7. Look at Kyle Dawkins. Forget about the clash of heads, whatever. It's look, hard to. Look at Kyle Dawkins when he fought Kevin Holland, when Holland was John at Daniel Cormier. Dawkins was even having success there. He was cranking around. He was having fun. He was starting to implement his game. With Phil Haas, he said, get that garbage out of here, like Jack Armstrong would say. And Phil Haas was able to implement his game plan. The scores... Two of them scored at 30-26. One had at 29-28. There was a 10-8 in the third round. What does Phil Haas do well? He has insane power. He has really good high kicks for a guy that's so big at 185 pounds. And this is a guy in Phil Haas that I heard pumped up so much. Again, Deron Wynn got pumped up a lot. Rashad Evans pumped up Phil Haas a lot. He was a guy that I knew, okay, if I ever see Phil Haas fight, because I used to look at his record and I go, why isn't he like with the PFL? Because he used to fight for World Series. Why haven't I heard more? But I know he's been on different shows and he's been here and there. But it just, when the moment was big, Phil Hawes never really got the win. Julian Marquez is the perfect example of that. And then he ends up on Contender Series and he beats Haji Basayev. Okay, that's pretty good. And then he flatlines Jacob Malkoon. And that win age is a little bit better. Like cheap wine, not like fine wine. Like no. cheap wine, because Malkoon looked good against Al Hassan, but that's neither here nor there. And then he fights Nasruddin Imovov. And I thought Imovov won that fight. But you can make an argument. The scores for that one, 28-28 and 229-28. Majority decision win for Phil Haas. Again, Imovov outstruck him. Phil Haas did a little bit of wrestling. And then Haas is able to beat Dawkins. And also take him down and try for a submission. I said early, when I flipped it over to you, one guy's an MMA wrestler. One guy is a practical wrestler. A pure wrestler, if you will. So I look at the odds for this one. Phil Haas opened as the favorite. Wasn't a surprise to me. At a minus 220. He's a minus 288 right now. For win, he opened a plus 185. He's a plus 228. And Matt, the theme of today is the topology votes aren't close. Do you expect them to be close for this one? I do not. They are not. 798 total votes. 93% Haas. 33% by decision. 61% by knockout. For the 7% that have win, 57% by decision. When the topology votes are that far out of whack... It means usually that it's going to be a squash match. Usually, sometimes stuff happens. Mazow's fight Nagapova next. We'll talk about it. But the matchmaking on this card's weird. The fights are weird on this card. And I think Phil Haas wins this fight nine times out of ten. I'll be pleasantly surprised if Duran Wynn comes chugging back in and picks up another big win here like he did against Antonio Hoyo. Pleasantly surprised. But I don't see it happen. Remember when Bench Kohea missed weight and I said that if you don't even care about your retirement fight, why should I? And then she went on to fight like someone who didn't really have a training camp. You know what I mean? Like sometimes when there's smoke, there is fire. The thing I don't like about Deron Wynn is that when Daniel Cormier talks about him, he says that 170 is the weight class that Wynn could have his most success at and the weight class that he belongs in. Deron Wynn's missed weight at 185. I don't like it that your best friend and supposed head coach and training partner is out here saying, hey, he could fight at welterweight and do it easily. And then you have trouble making the 185 pound limit. I just, I, I don't really know what to think about Deron Wynn. I have no idea what his ceiling is in the UFC. I don't even know what his floor really is. I just, I don't like that he is so one dimensional. And for that reason, like you had mentioned, I value MMA wrestling a lot more than just practical wrestling outside of a cage. So I'll pick Phil Haas in this one. Both of us going with Megatron, Phil Haas to, 
reel in the touchdown and get the win and retire as a Hall of Famer? Maybe? No. Phil Haas is going to win this fight more than likely. If you know something that we don't, if you've got Deron win, I want to hear from you. If you got Phil Haas, I want to hear from you too. And listen, we have some big fights coming up. The return of two prospects in the women's flyweight division. Agapova taking on Mazo and up at the top, Dern taking on Rodriguez. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say. Let's get into it. A year removed, plus, really, because it was back in August of last year, from her absolute blunders, one of the biggest upsets in all of MMA history. We have the return of Kazakhstan's Maria Agapova. She's taking on a big-time prospect in the Colombian queen, Sabina Mazau, who recently dropped her last fight back in February to one Canadian Alexis Davis. The pressure was too much in that fight. Will the pressure be too much in this one against Maria Agapova? Matt, Agapova has had a weird calendar year to say the least. She trains out of ATT Sunrise. You can find Charles Rosa there among others. But Matt, this is a strange fight and a crossroads fight, which is weird to say because we have two 24-year-old prospects in a division where a few wins, you're ranked. A few more wins, you fight Shevchenko. The tagline for this fight should be contenders or pretenders because both these fighters are in very similar uh, circumstances. With Mazo, there's been so much hype behind her in the UFC and when she did have her big opportunity against Alexis Davis, look what happened. She got outgrinded against that classic veteran type of a grinder, really, in Alexis Davis. And Maria Agapova had the exact same thing happen to her in her last fight. The difference was that she didn't lose to Alexis Davis, one of the most famous and well-known women's pioneers out there. She lost to Shayna Dobson. And if you've watched any Fight Night Picks videos, you know that Shayna Dobson's UFC run has not been great. So the fact that Agapova did lose that fight to Dobson looks so bad is really, really concerning. This is what I'm going to say, and this is why I call this a potential pretender matchup. I think Sabina Mazo and Maria Agapova are really good fighters when they're fighting their game. I think the second you decide to make it yours, they kind of break down their game plan. Does that make any sense? Like, with Mazo, I think she's really good when she is on the outside, when she is fighting at her pace. But I think the second you put pressure on either one of these fighters, it completely ruins their game plan. I remember way back when, when I started Fight Night Picks, Sabina Mazo was one of those fighters. I had two or three that it was like, okay... Piotr Jan, you gotta watch. Ramiz Brahimai, guy you gotta watch with the submissions. At the time, he was like 6-0. Everyone was by submission. I was going through the weird topologies, the underground whisper networks of the Vicente world. Luque. And Sabina Mazza was one of those fighters. So back in 2018, she had beaten Alejandra Lara, Reina Cordoba, Jamie Thornton, and Lindsay Williams. And then 2018, she fought Shannon Sin who is an interesting uh, you know, fighter. If you look at her record, she was 5-5 five five at the time, but a good win for Mazo. Go all the way back down to the start. Alejandra Lara's looked bad recently. She's looked bad since she challenged for the title when it was against Lee Malay McFarlane. However, Alejandra Lara was at one point, and I think she still can be, a good fighter. Sabina Mazo to get that win on the regional scene back in South America, big deal. Really early on, big deal. I absolutely love that. And then I look at Mazo. Well, she fought Marina Moroz, and she struggled with the pressure and the volume, right? So then you go back to the drawing board, and you look at the three wins she's able to rack off. She beats Shayna Dobson. MMA math, Sabina Mazo wins this fight every day. She beats JJ Aldrich by split. That's impressive. JJ, what does she do? She's a grinder, right? She's a grinder. She beats Justine Kish by submission. Destroyed her. I picked Justine in that fight, so good for Sabina Mazo. Then she fights Alexis Davis, and I remember before that fight going, you know, Alexis... 
You talk about grinders, Lexus. Once it comes to that second round, and then I listed every single fighter that she beat in the second round. It was like Chukagian, Arojo, like a lot of big names. Those are the only two I can think of. But Alexis Davis usually wins the second round, and then you got to rally back in the third, or Davis wins the third and wins the fight. That's what Davis did against Sabina Mazo. For Maria Agapova, tons of aggression, good wrestling, good grappling once it's on the mat. And then when she came out after beating Hannah Cyphers, handily. Now, Hannah was coming back after getting her leg almost torn off by Mackenzie Dern just very, very recently. It was like, wow, why is this fight happening? And then it happened. So Maria goes in there, and she's feeling it. And she's coming out, and she comes out hot and heavy in the first round. But that scrappy old teacher, Shayna Dobson, had tricks up her sleeve, came back, and ended up winning that fight by finish. Agapova has been out since. That was August of last year. We're now... What are we? October 4th. Like, when I think about these fighters, I think about them in the opposite way. I think about someone like Tony Ferguson. Like, when the fight gets tough for someone like Tony Ferguson, that's when it really starts. With Mazel, forward pressure, be it grappling or volume, can really get her off her game. And the exact same thing can be said for Agapova. That's why I have such a hard time picking this fight. Because, and this is going to sound like I'm Robin Black, but please hear me out. Whoever wants this more is probably going to win it. I just think whoever works at a slightly higher pace is going to be able to win this fight. Because this is the thing. Maria Agapova does not have the power to stop Sabita Mazow. And she doesn't have the power to stop her forward pressure. And the exact same thing can be said for Mazow about Agapova. If Agapova is the one moving forward, using her wonky movement, I think she's going to be able to get from point A to point B on Mazow honestly pretty easily. And I think the exact same thing can be said the other way around too. I just think whoever is in their offensive mode more often is going to win this fight because I think defense is not going to matter whatsoever. No, it's like an NBA All-Star game to take a map reference okay, away from you. But, but if I you want to do NBA, then like Jimmy Butler would be able to win this game easy because all he does is try really hard. If Sabina Mazow just decides that, hey, when we get close, I'm just going to clinch her up against the cage and when we're on the outside, I'm just going to leg kick. She should be able to win this fight fairly easily. So when I look at this one, and then I play the Instagram game. Again, I said Fragapova training at ATT Sunrise. If you want to Google her training whereabouts and habits, you can do that. You you can do that. It's out there. It's out there. They're squirrely. Less than reputable sites. But when I look at Maria Agapova training with Jillian Robertson, working that ground game, Sabina Mazel is in a gi all over on her Instagram. Brown belt. She's wearing it. She's working on the ground. And that's definitely the area of her game that probably needs the most work to round her out. Mazel's a great striker from the outside. Really good. Funky movements too. Long, rangy for this weight good class. Job. She almost does like a bit of a like a an L step. She kind of like moves her body into it with her legs. It's it's really different for this weight class. But she uses her length well. She's only got about an inch of height. She's got a couple inches of reach. She's gonna look like a big fighter in this one. For Agapova, it's just that aggression that I like to see in her fights. So when I look at the odds for this one, it is moment for pause. When you see a fighter go from minus at close, fifteen oh five when she fought Shanna Dobson. Two, Maria Agapova today, that's a plus 155 at open at a plus 134 right now. For Sabina Mazel, she opened a minus 180. She's minus 163. And when we look over on topology, all the gusto's gone. 760 total votes, 69% Mazel, 80% by decision. For the 31% that have Agapova, 65% by decision. I think if Agapova can get in there, get this one down to the mat, it's Agapova's, Agapova's world as long as the last year... For a couple hours a day, she's done the Brandon Davis regiment that brought him back to the UFC, where you're just working your cardio. The skills are there. We'll see what happens in this one, because again, she fell off that cliff as the fight went on. 
Maybe it was an adrenaline dump. I don't know. It, it kind of looked like that. But this is this is a tough fight for both women. What are you seeing here? I think Agapova's getting washed. There you go. I really do. Because this is the thing that Mazow has shown the ability to do. She can technically strike on the outside and still win a fight. If you just pressure her constantly, her footwork's good enough to defend a lot of your takedowns because she's not going to get her back up against the cage. She's going to move around on the outside a lot. And unless you have the punching power of someone like Jessica Andrade to where you can just get on the inside, two shots to the body, one up top, finish your opponent, I, I think Agapova's going to have a really hard time getting on the inside of those strikes from Mazow. It's not that I think Mazow can really stop uh, Agapova from getting on the inside. I just don't think Agapova is going to be able to do it consistently. She might be able to once or twice throughout the fight, but I think it's going to be a lot harder for Agapova to get on the inside of the reach of Mazow than it will be for Mazow to just keep her reach and extend with her jab and leg kicks. It's always tough to take a game plan from somebody like Alexis Davis that's been there, done that, fought for a title, really been around to take on uh, you know, a young prospect like she did uh, with Mazo. And again, that fight was at 135. And you got to talk about that too. Exactly. And Davis is a much bigger fighter than Agapova. That's all I was going to say. Like Maria Agapova's not a big flyweight by any means. Like she's kind of thin for the weight division. Her and Alexis Davis could not be more different types of opponents. Oh, there's a picture of Maria Agapova. Check it out on the Instagrams. I think it's the second or third to last picture when I was doing my research for this one last night. She's cut like she looks like a stack of paper. She looks like Matt just hanging out at New River Beach. I mean, it's it. She's very, very thin in that one. So we'll see what she looks like on the scale. For me, I'm gonna go with Sabina Mazo ever so slightly. But again, I have this one as a 50-50 coin flip. The odds are where they're at. If you can make a strong argument for either fighter, let us know. And you're not going to want to miss question mark kicks over on Saturday when we offer up our final picks and predictions for this card two hours before the prelims. And if you're not subscribed, you'll know when we go live. What are you doing? We got to hit that 30,000 subscriber mark so we can get that Dana White's Contender Series show going on. So for right now, both of us going with Sabina Mazo to get the win. Let us know who you've got. Big time fights at the top end of this card. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. Absolute banger. Coming up this weekend at 125 pounds, we have a couple of guys that like to have some very fun fights. In one wonky guy, Tim Elliott, taking on Mateus Nicolau-Namat. I know you're excited for this fight. With Tim Elliott, the guy doesn't give up. And this was the craziest thing. Because I've seen Tim Elliott fights. I've seen a lot of Tim Elliott fights when he was in the UFC, when he was out of the UFC. And one thing about him, he has a propensity to eat damage, to get wobbled, to get rocked on the feet... But I went back and looked, and these stats are never perfect. The guy's never been knocked down statistically in the UFC. I've seen him get wobbled where, like, he was out like this and then just kind of came back to life. Like, I mean, it's pretty apropos, but one of those creepy skeletons that you buy at, like, Costco and then everybody posts the pictures out there. Like, they're weird. I'm tired of those. Stop posting those online. He's taking on Mateus Nicolau, a guy that has... A wild amount of power for this weight class. Picked up a yeah. win in his return to the UFC when he took on Manel Kopp. I thought Kopp won, but that doesn't matter. Nikolaou wins the fight. And then it's like, okay, you build momentum with a win <laughs> like that. Now you get Tim Elliott. So for Mateus Nikolaou, he's probably like, okay, I guess I'll sign the boat sheet. This isn't an easy fight, though, against Tim Elliott. Have you ever thought that the winner of a split decision deserved the win? Ever? It just feels like every time we talk about a close decision, Craig's like, and hey, listen, the guy who lost got screwed over. This is what I'll say about this fight. I think this will be fight of the night without a doubt. Because 
Tim Elliott's gonna bring that type of fight out from Mateusz Nikolaou. Nikolaou does have this really weird ability in his fights to almost lull his opponents to sleep and then land his power shots, but I don't think we're gonna get those minutes of inactivity between the big actions in this fight because Tim Elliott does force the fight, whether it is striking, whether it is just trying to get into like a weird hip toss judo scenario, Tim Elliott just likes to be active. And the thing about Elliott is that he's sort of like Andre Arlovsky. I never know if we can completely write him off or not. He's had so many peaks and valleys throughout his career. And for this weight division, you just never really know when age is going to catch up to a guy. I know I've written Tim Elliott off about five times in this weight division, but every time that I do, he just comes back and he always has a really impressive performance that completely changes my mind. Because if you look at the recent run that Tim Elliott's had, and hey, it's only two wins to make up of the three losses that he had in a row before that, but he has shown at least a little bit of an evolution in his game. Well, Tim Elliott out-wrestled Jordan Espinoza, a classic wrestler at 125, and then he made it uncomfortable for everybody watching at home because you could hear what he was saying in the cage. But for Tim Elliott, man, that was a big-time win. And then before that, he beat Ryan Benoit, and that's a serviceable win. It's just, the thing about Elliott, though, and like you had mentioned, Espinosa is a really good wrestler, but Tim Elliott showed that I don't really care what your pre wrestling credentials are. MMA wrestling is the thing that matters, and that's the key of Tim Elliott. I don't really know what... like. I wouldn't say his judo is at the top of the list for the division. I wouldn't say that his wrestling's at the top of the list. But the way that he is mixed together, he's able to mix together his grappling and his wrestling and his cardio, it is really unique because he just puts such a pace on guys that they're not really used to. And that's going to be the big factor in this fight. Can Tim Elliott put such a pace on Mateusz Nikolaou that by the third round, you can take him down easier? You are able to land with your volume? Or is Nikolaou going to hit him with one of those big bombs on the way in? Because Nikolaou is really unique with his punching power at this weight division. Well, Nikolaou, if you look at it in his UFC 10 years, because there's been two of them, he was able to get two knockdowns versus Bruno Correa. That just sounds like a made-up name. He was on the last season of Dana White's Contender Series, actually, this season, that we're not doing shows for because you're not subscribed. Takes two seconds, you subscribe, you toss us a like, everybody's happy, we do Dana White's Contender Series previews, and you'd know about Bruno Correa coming you're back. Right. And Mateus Nikolaou knocked down Luis Smolka three times in their fight. Boxing. That's absolutely crazy. Against Manel Kopp, very close fight. But Manel Kopp, when Kopp's on, not his knockout win his last time out against Odie Osborne. When Manel Kopp is really having a good time and he's partying in the cage, that guy has pressure. That guy has wrestling and sometimes wrestling shoes. But he has pressure, a lot of hand speed, and great boxing. Something that I'm sure Nikolaou trained for getting ready for a fight against Tim Elliott. A little bit of some comparables there. Matt, when we look at the odds for this one, Nikolaou opened the favorite at about a minus 155. He's closing in right now on a minus 189. For Tim Elliott, open a plus 135. He's a plus 155. The total votes over on Topology, 763 of them. 69% Nikolaou, 76% by decision. For the 31% that have Elliott, 82% by decision. Is it going to be Letter Kenny? You guys own this. But Pitter Patter, let's get at her Tim Elliott. Or is it going to be Mateus Nikolaou just waiting, waiting? Throwing those counter shots, waiting, waiting, able to use his defensive hips and his good takedown defense in a fight like this, or is he going to get finished like he did when he fought Dustin Ortiz? I don't think he's going to get finished, but I could see Tim Elliott getting out to a massive lead in this fight. If Tim Elliott wins, it will be one of those 30-27s, 30-26s, because if he has success early, he's going to have that success late, and that is the key. If Tim Elliott lands his first takedown attempt of the night, then it's over for Nikolaou. If he's not able to keep Tim Elliott off of him, then Nikolaou cannot keep up with the pace of Elliott, just because most guys at this weight division can't. Aside from like Brandon Moreno, not many guys in those weight divisions. Pantoja? 
and Pantosia have the type of cardio that Tim Elliott's going to be able to bring into the cage. On the flip side, though, if Nikolai wins, it probably will be a highlight reel knockout. It will be one of those massive shots where he catches Elliott midway coming in, and it makes his shot look that much more powerful. Like, I could see Nikolai getting a finish win. I'm going to go with the underdog, though. I do like Tim Elliott and his overall activity in this fight. And like you had mentioned, that Kopp fight was really close. Now, I thought Nikolau did enough to get the win, but still, I thought Kopp laid enough of a game plan out that Tim Elliott can follow. Kopp was able to mix in his wrestling with his striking. What's Tim Elliott really good at doing? Mixing in his striking with his wrestling, so... I think if Tim Elliott can keep a good pace, mix in his wrestling early, I think he can get the win as the underdog. To me, I like Nikolai with the power. Again, I think a nice step-in jab, that's going to set it up, and then he tosses that right hand out there. There's a good opportunity for Nikolai. It sounds a lot easier said than done, just like how I thought Johnny and Walker might be able to get it done against Santos. This is a really interesting fight for the division, though, because I would say these guys are out of the elite of the division right now, but right now, flyweight is pretty good. There's a lot of really exciting contenders making their way up and down the ranks, out with the old in with the new so this is a massive fight for the division if Nikolau is able to get the win then he is ready for some of those top flyweight contenders out there I know I'd love like an Alex Perez versus Nikolau fight that would be phenomenal like there's a lot of fun fights that can be made in this division moving forward a lot of fun ones to be made Matt going with a former UFC flyweight title challenger Tim Elliott I have Brazil's Mateus Nikolau in this one let us know down below who you have Rate and review the podcast. Don't say that one often enough on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you get them. You can check them out there. And keep it locked in because we have some big time fights in the co-main and main event that you're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in as we always say, let's get into it. Ah, ow, oh my god. Ah, it's a bloodbath in here. There's got to be a better way to get my dagger clean and shiny safely than this. This is what I used to have to deal with when I cut myself shaving before I knew about Manscaped. Thank you, Manscaped, for keeping my dagger slick and ready for wherever the night takes me, hopefully with my wife. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code FNP. Now, Matt... We've been there before, and I've talked about it time and again. I bought the discount brand Shaver, and I've been out before. You know, you travel, you forget your nice toiletry bag at home, and you got to go and buy something that's less than. And we've all been there before. And then when you're going to get down in deep and maybe playing around in the groin region, you nick yourself. And listen, I'll be completely 100% honest. I maybe nick my nuts once, twice in my life. Like, it hasn't happened very often, but I've occasionally slipped caught myself right in the groin and that sucker doesn't stop that sucker don't stop and it's bad it really is and this is the last thing you want because it is spooky season halloween is right around the corner we've all seen the original psycho you're in the shower like you are when you're hopefully using your manscape 4.0 you're having a good time you're trying to shave below the belt and then next thing you know you look down is that blood I see in the water? Now, luckily, that's not something you have to worry about with the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. Because of the ceramic blade, you don't really have to worry about nicking yourself. And that just is nice. Because this is the thing. If you nick yourself, it's not just a problem for that day. You have to deal with that cut the next day. And the next day. It takes a little while to heal and go away. So if you can just avoid the situation altogether, you're just going to have a better week because of it. Well, it's time to end the days of shaving your balls, ending up looking like that horror movie. The folks at Manscaped have the perfect pack for your package to get this done it's a perfect package 4.0 inside you're gonna find the things that we talk about week over week like 
the Weed Whacker. Now I've talked about it, the 360 degree motor that's in here. You can take it apart very easily if you ever have to clean it, which listen, if you've got nose hair problems like I do, you probably have to clean it fairly often. I'll use it. You can, you can really hear that working there this week uh, because yeah, it's been a little bit since I have used it, but all sorts of great stuff. If you do pick up that performance package, they're also going to throw in two free gifts with it. The Manscaped Boxers, the Shed Travel Bag, and if you're heading on over to their website, maybe you want to pick up a shirt too to go along with it. I like the shirt, but included in the performance package, we've talked about it time and again, but the Lawnmower 4.0, same idea. Really easy to clean out and grease that little motor that's in there. You know you got to do that if you want to keep your stuff high and tight, but also keep your stuff working. If you got the travel lock on like I do right now, as you're moving around, it won't turn on. But one, two, three, triple tap, that light's going to go all the way down. And then we're good to go. Rock and roll. 4000K LED light on there. You talked about the ceramic edge as well in terms of what we have for that blade. And if you want to check them out, you can get 20% off and free shipping. With the code FNP at manscaped.com, spend spooky season using the best tools for the job at Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with code FNP at manscaped.com. That, again, is 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code FNP. Slap your worst pubes and keep your dagger clean with Manscaped. Listen. It's been a great partnership. They've been along for, what, eight months now? So it really has been great. You support our sponsors. You support us as well. Check them out. You know where it is, manscaped.com, promo code FNP. You get 20% off for free shipping. Supporting the boys. Matt, we have two big fights in our co-main and main event. Rude boy, Randy Brown, taking on Jared Gooden. And in the main event, listen, strawweight title, maybe? Number one contender fight? Mackenzie Dern taking on Marina Rodriguez. You're not going to want to miss it. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. Absolute banger at 170 pounds in our co-main event this weekend. We have Rude Boy Randy Brown taking on the Night Train, Jared Gooden. And does he like the song by Jason Aldean? I don't know. Does Randy Brown like the song by Rihanna? I do, but I don't know if he does, Matt. Randy Brown is such an interesting character in the overall layout of this division because you look at it and he's faced weird levels of competition. You look at the five on in, the loss to Nico Price. You look at the loss to Vicente Luque. And then you look at wins over Brian Barberena, Warley Alves, Alex Oliveira. By finish, by finish, by finish. And then you look at fights against like Mickey Gall and you go, this guy's been in a weird place since he came into the UFC. Jared Gooden, same can be said. Alan Joban, you lose in the retirement fight. Great fight. Then you fight Abubakar Nurmagomedov, and Gooden's so nervous of getting taken down and that he leaves his hands down and gets boxed up by the grappler. And then his last time out, he fights Dustin Streisfuss, who I would say is well-rounded. I picked Streisfuss in that one, and Jared Gooden put his lights out quick. So when I look at this one, I listened to an interview last night by Canadian James Lynch, Pub Sports Radio, from Randy Brown, and... A, I threw it out there on Reddit, and a lot of people were surprised. He said the same thing before his last fight. Randy Brown trained a bit this time out. Not fully, but a bit at King's MMA. A little bit at Belmore Kickboxing. You know and love Andre Harrison there. You know and love Gregor Gillespie. He also spent some time at Gracie's in Philly, and I'm assuming maybe like a Sean Brady type was there too. Randy Brown, to train in all three of those gyms, tells me the story of Randy Brown's career. The guy can strike when he needs to strike. He can grapple when he needs to grapple. And if Randy Brown was like a 7 out of 10 wrestler, man, like he'd be a top 15 guy for a long time. I like a lot of the weapons that Randy Brown has. I like his length. 
I like the pop at the end of his shots. There's so many things to like. It just all has to come together in one package, and you have a special fighter. I agree 100%. Randy Brown's the fighter, or a fighter, that you can see in the top 15 easily. And you can see him being in the top 15 for a long time, because he does have such a well-rounded skill set. And this is the thing about Randy Brown. You mentioned it. You can just think about his wrestling because he has enough highlights of just his wrestling in the UFC. You can think of just his jiu-jitsu because he has nice submission wins in the UFC. And you can think about his striking too. And you can kind of think about every aspect of his game as just a singular martial art. It is sort of the fact that He's not bad at bringing them all together. I shouldn't say that. But the guys who do have all those X factors and all the intangibles of I can mix in my wrestling with my jiu-jitsu with my striking, they seem to just outthink Randy Brown, if anything. Like, look at the Nico Price fight. That Price fight was that weird, like, I'm going to hold your head up with my foot and hammer fist you. One of the strangest TKO losses of all time. But still, it was one of those weird in-between positions where Randy Brown's thinking, okay, how do I get from point A to point B to point C? And Nico Price is like, hey, I just really like to fight. Your head's open. I'm going to take the free shot. So for Randy Brim, I think that there's two versions of his career. If he wins that Nico Price fight, he's probably not going to have to fight Vicente Luque. But he's probably getting boosted up a little bit faster. He's probably given more favorable matchups moving forward. And he probably could be in the top 15 already. The unfortunate thing is that when you look at the three losses Brown has suffered in the UFC, it's Bilal Muhammad. Who cares? One of the top fighters in the division. Vicente Luque, probably fighting Nate Diaz next in what should be a crazy fight. And Nico Price, a guy who on his best day is a tough fight for anybody. What I'm trying to say is that Randy Brown should be talked about as a guy who every single one of his fights should be against a borderline top 15 guy. I have nothing against Jared Gooden. It's just when you have two poor performances, then you have a quick flash knockout. I don't learn that much about you. I still look at Jared Gooden as the exact same fighter now as I did when he came into the UFC. And I guess the best way to break this fight down would be I look at Randy Brown kind of like Curtis Blades and I look at Jared Gooden kind of like Derek Lewis. If Jared Gooden wins, it's going to be that flash knockout. It's going to be a highlight reel for weeks, months, and years to come. But if Randy Brown can mix together his wrestling with his striking and just be a smart fighter, I really do think this is his fight to lose. For Jared Gooden, it's a weird one. And going back to that interview from James Lynch and the answers that were given by Randy Brown, he kind of talked about it almost like I had a date. They had to fill the dance card. So he was already ready. He's out there and the music's playing. What song is it? The Eric Prids version of Call On Me. And he's just sitting there and he's snapping his fingers. And then all of a sudden, behind the curtain, Jared Gooden. Jared Gooden. Amazing knockout his last time out. And enough good things can't be said about that one. And I know Jared Gooden, Jared Gooden is one of those guys that Dan at Best Fight Picks is going to be all over him because he really supports Boys, yeah. the NFC guys and he supports the guys in the Southeast. But Matt, I, I really do like the fight. I can definitely see a method of victory for both guys because if Gooden's able to go strike for strike out there, we've seen him successful against guys. Again, that Nermega Meadow fight was a little weird. The Alan Joban fight, maybe it was just first fight jitters. Like it was really Joban leading the dance, but Gooden landed some good shots in that fight too. So when I look at the odds for this one, I know we've talked a lot about Randy Brown. He opened a minus 200 favorite. He's a minus 244 for Gooden. Open a minus or sorry a plus 170 he's plus 196 on best fight odds for the topology votes it's a story of tonight everybody 734 total votes 88 percent brown 50 percent by decision 20 percent by submission 24 percent by knockout that math doesn't add up we're missing like five percent six percent so that's kind of weird uh for the jared gooden 12 percent 67 percent have the win by knockout i don't necessarily see him winning a decision 
I, I like Randy Brown in this fight. I think I made that known. I think Gooden has the opportunity to put his lights out. So if you like him by knockout, like 67% of the 12%, I mean, that's cool. That's what? 8% eight of people out there have Jared Gooden to win by knockout of all the votes. But 8% of the other 92, like I like Randy Brown here. If Jared Gooden does the classic, hey, I'm probably getting taken down anyways, let's just go scorched earth, I think he could win this fight, and I think he could land that big shot. But this is the big thing about this fight. Jared Gooden has to go after Randy Brown quick. It's kind of like Garrett Cole, for instance, throwing like 10 fastballs right away. Like, establish yourself early, and then let that be the rhythm for the rest of the fight. If you meet Randy Brown's takedown attempts with power initially, it's going to make him be a little bit more hesitant each and every one of those takedown attempts. And every single question mark you can put in Randy Brown's head is going to leave a slightly bigger window open to land that big power shot. So, I think if Gooden can land early, he can have success, but I still like Randy Brown his overall game. I mean, if sunscreen and rosin doesn't work for you you can take a white bar of soap if you're wearing white pants and rub it on the side lick your fingers there you go my, great grip my catcher put pine tar in his hair once there's a real fact i used to take dollar store hair gel when i had hair mats length and i put it in my hair and then yeah. i grab it when i was playing in the intro you ain't cheating you ain't trying guys we can play these games all day matt i have randy brown in this one as you do as well representing queens and jamaica to get the win in this fight i can't wait for it though because listen this is one of the best fights on this card, and I get amped up for stuff like this. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have. Make sure you're subscribed already, you toss the like already, and you're ready for question mark kicks on Saturday. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. Like Big time fight coming up this weekend in the main event. We have Brazil's Marina Rodriguez taking on the super grappler Mackenzie Dern, who shot out like a phoenix after her loss to one Amanda Hebos. And if we're playing MMA math, one woman lost to Hebos, one woman beat Hebos. And I think ultimately the winner of this fight, either one gets a rematch with Carla Esparza, one gets a new matchup with Carla Esparza. But we'll see what happens. I can't wait for the fight. And I want to know what the people are thinking out there. Did you like the full card previews and predictions thumbnail for this one? I thought it was pretty I cool. I'll pat myself on the back. But I want to hear from you guys nonetheless. Guys, gals, everybody out there, let me know. Matt, when it comes to this fight, it's such an interesting one. Because for Dern, she had that loss to Amanda Hebos. Reset, refocus. She fought a level of competition. And I'll leave it there. But she submits Hannah Cyphers and takes her leg away. She submits Randa Marcos. She beats Vina Janjidoba by decision. It was unanimous. I have arguments. And then she beat Nina Nunes in Nunes' comeback fight by armbar. Now, Matt, I will be totally honest because I was going to put some clips of me going, nope, I don't have Dern. Nope, I don't have Dern. I, I took Dern worry. from Hebus to Cyphers to Marcos. I took Dern. Janjidoba, I didn't because of the striking. I thought Janjidoba would have successes and maybe be able to negate some of the grappling on the ground. And then I took... Nunez to get the win because I thought, oh, okay, Nunez is a much better pitter-patter striker on the feet. I've seen the marked improvements of Mackenzie Dern. And the other thing that I want to point out, I've seen that she's one of those fighters. Damian Maia is actually a bad example because he has 61% takedown defense or thereabouts in the UFC. Mackenzie Dern has less than 15% takedown defense in the UFC because if you take her down, you're doing her a favor. You're an idiot if you take Mackenzie Dern down. Anybody who's done it, just... 
Mackenzie Dern is that grappler in this division. Like, she's the Brian Ortega. She's the Damian Maya. She's the Fabricio Verdum. Whatever other fighter you want to compare it to, she is that jiu-jitsu ace in this division. But the great thing about Mackenzie Dern is that she's not like a baseball player who hits home runs then just falls in love with hitting home runs and then they strike out because of it and they never really build up the rest of their skill set. Mackenzie Dern figured, okay, I have a grappling background that not uh, many other fighters can match. It's been something that I've drilled since I was a child. My father is world famous for his grappling, Megaton Diaz, of course. So it's not like anybody in the world's really going to catch up to me in the grappling. What do I do? I should go to a boxing gym and improve my hands. And that's what Mackenzie Dern's done. And it hasn't just been, oh, Mackenzie Dern's now training at a boxing gym. We're seeing highlights of her looking good in the gym. And then in her MMA fights, it doesn't look like she's pulling it all together. What I like about Mackenzie Dern is that she's taken the improvements from the gym and put them in the cage, and that's super important. How many times do we sit here and say, oh, we've seen this fighter on Instagram, or they talked about this in an interview, talk about these are the new skills that I have, and you're going to see them in the next fight. And then they just kind of fight the same way that they've always fought in the past. The great thing about Mackenzie Dern is we don't just hear about the improvements. We can actually see them in the cage too. Well, the same thing can be said in Marina Rodriguez, another fighter that comes into the UFC of a certain expectation. Again, she has two draws. And if we want to play that game, Marina Rodriguez beat Amanda Hebus, but she drew with Randa Marcos and Mackenzie Dern beat her. So again, you can play those silly little games. She lost a split decision to Carlos Barza, drew with, uh, who was it, Cynthia Calavillo, wins over Tisha Torres, wins over Amanda Hebos. That's a finish win. And a win over Michelle Watterson where, was it a fun fight? No. But she was able to outstrike Michelle Watterson who kind of rallied late. But for Marina Rodriguez, deadly when she's on the outside. And this is a position that, if she gets in it, it's bad against Mackenzie Dern, but against a lot of fighters, when she's on her back, really, really deadly elbows when she's on her back, like Bisbing when he fought GSP. But for Rodriguez, the trouble that a lot of people have is that she finds herself on her back too often. Her takedown defense in the UFC is nothing to shake a stick at, and it's different than Mackenzie Dern, who, again, you're doing her a favor if you take her down. For Marina Rodriguez, 54% takedown defense, or sorry, 62% takedown defense, 0% takedown defense for Dern, 10% takedown accuracy, but submission wins nonetheless. And if you look at it in terms of the striking, not that close. Definitely favors Marina Rodriguez in this fight, who again, coming off wins over Hebos, over Watterson, where Mackenzie Dern, Janji Doba, Nunez, you can say what you want. A lot of people in the comments section haven't really been loving the level of competition that Dern's fought. Let's go through some of those comments because we threw the thumbnail out there or we threw the picture out there in the YouTube community tab. Drew Cliff, 82, who's there week in and week out with comments saying this is a tough one. Question is, how good is Dern? Really, Marina's clearly faced much better opponents, but she's shown issues with the takedown. D, the threat of the takedown, and Marina not wanting to be on the ground at all will give Dern more freedom in the striking department. When she lands, she hits pretty hard. I can see Dern taking her down, so on and so forth. T. Holmes saying, I like this fight a lot. So do I, T. Holmes. You have the Isaiahnator saying, Marina can't stop a takedown to save her life. Mackenzie by submission. Just my two cents. Dern's by sub. Clearly, Dern wins this. Uh, Marina by TKO, easy money. Marina by decision. And then Daryl, who says, worst card ever. And there's a lot of comments trying to pick Daryl up. You got to pick each other up in the comments section. When one goes down, we pick them up. We have a good time. This is what I'm going to say about this fight. I don't think it's going to go to uh, the decision no matter what. Because 
This is probably going to happen. Either Marina Rodriguez establishes the jab early, gets her leg kicks going early, and it's just such an accumulation of volume and damage on her behalf that Mackenzie Dern is not going to be able to get takedowns. She's going to be so far away from Rodriguez that she's going to look bad on the outside probably and get outboxed because no matter how many improvements Dern has made in the striking department, it's very similar to Rodriguez. Like, if Rodriguez did nothing but jiu-jitsu for the last two years, she still probably wouldn't be as good as Mackenzie Dern at just jiu-jitsu. Like, you can make improvements but it's still hard to get better than somebody when that is their specialty. So I think this is an all or nothing fight. One way traffic, one way or the other. Either Dern gets that takedown early on in the fight, probably wins via armbar, leg lock, rear naked choke. That's the thing about Mackenzie Dern. She doesn't just have to go after one kind of submission. She can get it done in so many different kind of ways. And you, you almost did my work for me. You brought it up. The thing that I hate about Marina Rodriguez is the fact that she strikes off her back. I understand in some matchups, it's a good thing. It creates separation. It's going to get your opponent to maybe stand back up and get off of you. But against Mackenzie Dern, you do not want to be a fighter who's known for getting held down. If Mackenzie Dern is in your full guard, even if you lock up your guard and you're trying to land elbows and you're doing everything you can to just stall the position, Mackenzie Dern will find a way to get out of it. She will pass your guard, get into half control, get into half guard, sorry, get into full mount, and probably submit you. Ah, I can't believe I'm saying this, Craig. I think Marina Rodriguez is going to win this fight via TKO. Now, she's probably going to get submitted in the first three seconds of the fight, but I think if she can establish the jab early, if she can start accumulating damage from the outside early, like she was able to do against uh, Michelle Watterson, I really do think that the striking and the wrestling of Mackenzie Dern hasn't come to the level to take someone like uh, Rodriguez down. So against almost my better judgment, I do think that the accumulation of strikes from Rodriguez is going to give Dern a lot of trouble. Because this, this will be the last thing I say. I think Dern's biggest win and her worst loss are probably because of the exact same thing. People forget that Mackenzie Dern came back like a week after having her kid to fight Amanda Hebos. I understand it wasn't a week, but it was a very rapid turnaround after taking a lot of time off, after having her body change a lot. The exact same thing kind of has to be said for Nunez when Nunez is getting ready for her fight against Dern. Nunez has a lot of time off, has a child, and then comes back honestly pretty quick after having that kid and fights Mackenzie Dern. I think Dern herself was a compromised version when she fought Amanda Hebos, and I think Nunez was somewhat compromised when she fought Dern, so I do somewhat agree with the level of competition argument with Mackenzie Dern, and that's why I have to pick Rodriguez. When I look at the odds for this one, Dern open a minus 185 favorite, best fight odds average minus 162 right now, Monday night. Marina Rodriguez open a plus 160, she's plus 134. The topology votes, they are not close. They haven't been close all card long. 834 total votes, 70% Dern, 80% by submission for the 30% that have Rodriguez, 47% by submission, 44% by knockout. For the 47% that have Rodriguez to win by decision, I would be a little surprised if this went to a decision, but I was surprised last week when Santos and Walker went to a decision. So I could be surprised week, two weeks in a row with five round main events. And main events should be five rounds, like MVP and Douglas Lima. Do it, Bellator. Do it. Why don't you do it? Just do it. But when I look at this one, Mackenzie Dern, I've had this wrong sense about her. You know, I look at the Janji Doba fight and I went, well, Janji Doba, she can strike a little bit. She's a really good grappler in her own right. She's long, she's rangy, she's wonky. Kind of like Rodriguez, but not like Rodriguez. Because Janji Doba's way better on the ground and has better takedown defense. And I still thought that she won the fight against Dern, but I'll stop making that argument. And then when Dern fought Nunes, I went, well, that's a good striker. Nunes is going to win. Marina Rodriguez is a much better striker. She's long. She's and ranging. she didn't just have a kid. She's got pop at the end of her shots. Look at the he-boss win. 
But Mackenzie Dern, this is where I was wrong, but then I changed my mind. Just like Casey O'Neill last weekend. Just like Casey O'Neill where I went, she's good on the ground. She's not that good. I know how good Dern is on the ground, but I was so wrong about Casey O'Neill that I went back, I racked my brain and went back and watched the fights. Same thing with Dern. I think if this touches the mat for two seconds, it's over. You're probably right. And I like Mackenzie Dern for that fact. I think she now has those, you know, abilities where they're going to market it. Do I think Marina Rodriguez goes out there, watches our video, watches MMA Lock of the Night, watches Dan at Best Fight Picks, watches Cody Saptic, watches Paul Shaughnessy on the same show, probably not. watches what uh, Ian Parker says, watches what Clint Diehard MMA Pod, watches everybody and goes, man, I don't like what they say about this fight. No! Do I think she watches any of the UFC promo? No! I don't. None of it matters to Marina Rodriguez, except for what happens in the octagon. I think Dern goes out there and plays the striking game just quick. Goes overhand, and then we're going down, and we're playing with the legs, and we're going for a takedown. I like Dern in this fight for that reason. She can play those games, and I think that that trickiness is going to get her the win. I can't really disagree with it. Again, it's going to be all or nothing one way or the other. My issue with Dern is she her striking has improved. She doesn't have any strikes that set the table for her big power shots, though. It's really a lot of those looping, powerful shots, which they are good. She has improved her hooks a lot, but she doesn't work behind a jab. She doesn't have a lot of volume accumulating strikes in the feet. And that's why I like Rodriguez. If Rodriguez is able to use her leg kick, use her jab, and just get off to a big lead, Mackenzie Dern only has a 10% success rate with her own offensive takedowns. If you Look at a lot of her submission wins. It's uh, Randa Marcos took her down. Hannah Cyphers jumps into her guard for reasons that we might never know. It's just, it's a lot of her opponent making the mistake and not Mackenzie Dern going out there and forcing the win. So I'm going to pick Rodriguez, but I'm really excited for this main event. Like, I truly am. The winner is going to fight Carla Esparza. Knock on wood. Let's see what happens. But Matt, I do like this fight and the rest of our 11 fight set. If anything changes, make sure you keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. I say that. All the time. I end the videos. Keep it locked in. Let's get into it. So on and so forth. Subscribe. Because we're going to add a, ch a show. Tell we, a friend. We continue saying it, but it's got to happen. So if you subscribe, if you tell a friend to subscribe, if you toss us a like, it helps out the channel, but it brings more people on. And we want to bring that Dana White's Contender Series content your way. And the time is a dwindling down. Mike Malott's got a fight coming up. He's Canadian. He trains with some of the best in the world at, what is it, Team Alpha Male? We missed Aaron Jeffrey's fight. Aaron Jeffrey, Canadian. Anthony mm. Romero, Canadian. A lot of Canadians out there. But I know a lot of people want to see this content, and it means a lot to them. It means a lot to me. But we got to reach that 30,000 threshold. Let's make it happen this week. Tune in to Question Mark Kicks two hours before the prelims. A final look at the weigh-ins, final picks and predictions that actually go out there in the community tab and on the socials. So it's it's like an R.L. Stein create-your-own-destiny type of book. And I want that show to happen, and I know you do too. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. Maybe if we hit 30,000 afterwards, we'll figure out something else to add to the rotation. But hey, the more of you That's guys... That's not going to happen. That's going to happen. The more you guys that support us, the more content we can make for you guys. And really, at the end of the day, we just like hanging out with other MMA fighters. So the more... Or with other MMA fans, goodness. So the more MMA fans we can get together in one spot, just the more fun it makes this whole community. New office coming in the next couple of weeks. I know people are excited about that too. You can find us as always at Craig Allen FNP, at Matt Allen FNP, and at Fight Night Picks. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say, let's get into it.